Well, Father in heaven, we come to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. We seek your blessing on these readings and these recordings. Uh, this will be our third outreach for 2017. And we ask you, Lord, to bless the presentation today and for the rest of our time here. We hope and pray that those that are sitting around this table this morning will be blessed. And those that hear these recordings in the weeks and months and years to come will also be blessed. And we ask your blessing on this on Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And I want to call this message, Why do I still sin? Why do I still sin? Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Look at verse 20, if you will. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Written by Solomon. For there is not a just man or woman upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Some man came to the Lord one day and he said to the Lord, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, he said Sir, he said several things. He said, First of all, don't call me good. Nobody is good but one. That is God. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. And good luck trying to keep the commandments. Of course, what the Lord was trying to do was break the man down. The man was a self-righteous individual. But the point is this, nobody is good but God. And the word for good simply means more perfection. So when Solomon says here, 720, that there isn't a just man, and of course the word just is a term for a good man, a righteous man, he means just that. There isn't a just man or woman upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not, like 24-7. And yet we have a problem today in the body of Christ. We have one or two views. The first view says this, that once you get saved, you don't sin. And if you do sin, you're not saved. We have another uh, dangerous view. It says this, that once you are saved, you can do what you want. And it's all good. Both views are ridiculous. And I would suggest both views are heretical. But here Solomon, great wise man, a very complex uh, character, of course, like his father David, sets the theme for the Old Testament. One more time and I move on. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So you would think, anyone who's ever read the scriptures, just very casually, that such a verse would be pretty clear. I mean, you think it says what it means, and it means what it says. Go to Romans chapter 7. Scripture with scripture. So Solomon told you how it was. He didn't beat around the bush. And like I say, he was a very uh, complex character. And one of the greatest epistles in the New Testament is the epistle to the Romans. And I would suggest this, that if you can get Romans down and Ephesians and Galatians, you are pretty firm. You're solid. But a lot of Christians get caught up in the Gospels. They never spend much time looking at the epistles. And they are sometimes still living under the law. Because we have to remember that Jesus Christ was a Jew. He came to his own, being the Jews, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, like you and I, all of us around this table this morning, to them gave you the right and the power to become the sons of God. There was a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you can get Romans down, if you can get Galatians down, if you can get Ephesians down, you're pretty firm, you're solid. And you shouldn't be tossed to and fro with one extreme that if you sin, you're not saved. And if you're saved, uh, you can do whatever you please. It's all good. Both are dangerous views. And I would suggest can shipwreck your faith. <clears throat> In fact, just this morning, I was going through my Facebook wall. I check it every morning. And one of my FB friends, I don't know this person particularly well, but 
an FB friend was saying that they're in a lot of pain, like physical pain, and they are thinking about just ending their life. Now, I don't know the whole story. I would think it's probably just a cry for help. You know, please send me some comments, give me something to hang on to. And I was reading the comments. A lot of people saying, hang in there, we're praying for you, we love you. But I would suggest that this person is probably saved, has an old nature, and is suffering with physical ailments, which may or may not be sin-related, and just wants to throw in the towel, wants to finish their own life. Never acceptable, never the way out, of course. But if you hit rock bottom, if uh, times are very difficult for you, you can understand why people would want to just close their eyes and fall asleep. But reading the comments, it was very encouraging. People were stepping forward saying, we're, you know, we're with you, hang in there, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, there's no need for me to leave a comment. There's so many other comments that have been left. And know that this person is receiving PMs as well. PM meaning private mail, if you don't know. Romans chapter 7. Now the Apostle Paul comes along. And he says this from verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Many times in the Psalms, the writers would suggest how they loved the law, how the law would convert the soul, how the law would give you peace of mind. Absolutely true. And yet at the same time, the law isn't your friend. The law can't help you. It's like I said, you know, over the years, if you are a driver and you drive from A to B in the UK, if you drive in a residential area, the speed limit is 30 miles an hour. The next uh, level is 40 miles an hour and then it's 70 for the motorway. Now, you try and drive 30 miles an hour. I mean, like, bang on. It's very, very difficult. You've got one eye on the speedo, one eye on the road. If you drive slightly under the limit, like 28, 29, technically breaking the law. In fact, I saw a documentary of a car driving down the motorway too slow. The police pulled the car over and said, you're driving too slowly, there's a ticket. Never mind driving too fast, they were driving too slow, and they got penalised for it. You drive over the speed limits, the same sort of thing, points and licence and a fine. The law is not your friend. At the same time, let's say you could keep the law. It's impossible, but for argument's sake, let's say you were able to keep the law, and you thought to yourself this, well, I'm going to go to the town hall. Hello, Mr. Town Hall Clerk. Just to let you know, I've had a very good year. I haven't broken the law once this year. They'd laugh in your face. They don't care if you've kept the law. They say, you know, that's what you should do. It's your duty to do that. Now, it may be possible to keep some of the law in the UK, but I doubt you keep all of the law. So I'll say two things. Yes, the law is good. Yes, the law can save you. Uh, Sorry, it can convict you to become saved. And it can give you peace of mind. But at the same time, it isn't your friend. It says that the, the, the law was your schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. And yet most people have this foolish notion that somehow they can keep the law and they try every trick in the book to attempt to, to keep the law. Romans 7, Romans seven fourteen again. For we know that the law is spiritual, probably Ten Commandments, but I am carnal, present tense, sold under sin. So Paul knew one thing, that the law was great, it was good, it came from God Almighty, but at the same time he knew that it was impossible to keep going back to the speed limit analogy and there's so many other analogies that i could cite this morning 15 for that which i do i allow not for what i would that do i not but what i hate that do i people say well when paul wrote this he was writing before he was saved impossible when paul wrote this he was speaking hypothetically impossible for that which i do and this is all present tense if you missed it i allow not for what i would That do I not, but what I hate, that do I. So we say this, we say that Paul had two natures. 
We say Paul was a saved man, born again. Solomon, I believe, was saved, but not born again. I'll explain that in a minute. He gets saved, he receives Christ's imputed righteousness. But at the same time, Paul has a problem. He's got bad blood, he's got a bad body, he's got a bad brain. It's in his DNA. It's from Adam's original sin. We call that just that original sin. People come along and they say this, that the doctrine of original sin isn't scriptural. And they say that it was invented by Augustine. Well, hold on. Augustine came up with the term original sin. That's absolutely true. But the doctrine is scriptural. It's like the word Trinity. I think it was Tertullian or Irenaeus. I think it was Tertullian, actually, who came up with the term Trinity. But the doctrine, Trinity, Godhead, is scriptural. So it's immaterial to us who came up with the term original sin or Trinity. It's a scriptural doctrine. So Paul is addressing the whole situation of the new man, Loving the law, the law's good, it can, you know, it can convert the soul, it can give you peace of mind, and yet at the same time it can condemn you. It's not your friend, in a sense, it's your enemy. It's there to remind you, like you needed to be reminded, that you're no good. Hence why you got saved in the first place. In fact, I was told a story not long ago concerning the um, Watchman Nee Church, Witnessly, and uh, Watchman Nee died in occupation, and Witness Lee replaced him. Some of their doctrines are a little off, others are pretty okay. I'd say probably 75-80% of what they taught was pretty scriptural. They did occasionally go into the Lordship Salvation Camp and other doctrines, but one statement that was relayed to me concerned um, Witness Lee, and he said this. This is a typical Sunday morning service. He got up, spoke to his congregation in the thousands, and he said this. He said, some of you men here are deacons, elders, pastors, I know some of you guys personally, and yet you're mean to your wives. You're cruel, you run a tight ship, you do this, you do that, you're nasty. But you're born again, I understand that, but you treat your wives like slaves. Absolute silence. Some of you men should be ashamed of yourselves. You've got teaching authorities, but you're cruel, you're mean, etc., etc., etc. Some of your wives have come to me with some awful problems about abuse, this, what have you, and I can't help you wives. I don't know what to say to you wives. It breaks my heart. That you men, and I've ordained some of you men, are behaving like this. This is a conservative church. This isn't some event, some sort of liberal, evangelical, ecumenical church. This 70, 80, 90, in the 90s, early 2000s, was conservative. And he's saying, you guys should be ashamed of yourselves, etc., etc., etc. But he made one good point. He said this. The church is like a hospital. And that's a good point. It's like a hospital, and a hospital is run by doctors and nurses. It's there for the patients, obviously. That's what you're there for. Who wants to go to hospital just to hang out? Of course you don't. You know, you're going to the operating table. You know, you're pretty, you know, it's a pretty awful environment. You can't sleep at night. You've got talking, you know, commotions. And I'm told it's awful if you have to have an operation. So the church, in a sense, is like a hospital. I mean, Jesus, Jesus would say, I've come to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. We have a sin problem. We have a sickness problem. It's called original sin. So when I heard that story about Witness Lee, given 10, 15 years ago, not 100 years ago, not 200 years ago, quite recently, aimed at men in his church, conservative men, King James men, being physically, emotionally, and psychologically abusive to their wives, daughters, and probably their sons, I thought, yeah, I can well believe it. It's the old man. It's in all of us. Going back to we've got bad blood, we have bad bodies, we have bad brains. 15 and I move on. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. So Paul was a saved man. 
And I know that we're all saved sitting on this table this morning. We all love the Lord. We're all Bible believers and we all have good intentions. In fact, this outreach, I would suggest, is the most ambitious autumn outreach so far. It's taken quite a bit of planning. It's cost a lot of money. We've all come from different parts of the world to make this happen. And we are all quietly confident it's going to be very successful. We've all got good intentions. And for me, I don't want to lose my temper on the street. I'm trying really hard not to lose my temper with an atheist or an agnostic or some perhaps lordship salvationist or some charismatic. You know, it happens occasionally for me on the street. And, you know, I'm not proud of that. But I've got to watch my tongue because once I lose my temper, it's, you know, it's on camera. It's not particularly good. So here I can relate to Paul. I can relate to Solomon. And so far, I know that I'm on good ground. On top of that, I can relate to what Paul is saying. Look at 16. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the Lord that it is good. Well, of course it's good. The Ten Commandments are wonderful. Love the Lord thy God. Love your neighbours yourself. Don't lie. Don't steal. Keep the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath, if we want to use it for the day, will be Sunday. That's all pretty good. But it's not possible to keep it completely, truthfully, 100% to the spirit and the letter. You might miss a couple of Sundays. You might be sick. Some people have to work on Sundays. I've known people over the years that have worked for the emergency services and they've had to work on Sundays. I remember one chap I met briefly, he was a fireman and he was an elder in a pretty conservative church. And he said to me over a cup of tea once, he said, I have to work every other Sunday. I have to. And I said to him, I understand that. I mean, Paul said over in Romans that some days are holier than others, but it was an issue for him. But technically, if you use the Ten Commandments, the analogy, he's broken that law. He's violated the Sabbath. If you take that to be the case, and I'll look at that more over the next day or so. So I understood what he was saying, and I thought, yes, his heart is right. He wants to break bread every Sunday, as we all do. It's important to us. It's important to have at least one day out of our busy weeks to come together read the scripture and break the bread. Some churches do it once a month. Some do it once a year. But for me, that's too long. I want to do it every Sunday. I want to break bread. I want to read the scripture and spend time with like-minded people. 17. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So Paul's saying this. He's saying, the law is good. Yes, it is. I am carnal. Yes, you are. I want to do right, but I end up doing wrong. At the same time, what we don't want to ever do, none of us want to do, is justify our sins. There's no point saying, well, I'm born this way. I can't help it. I can't help beating my wife up. I can't help beating my husband up. And it goes both ways, of course. I've heard some statistics lately of women that beat their husbands up. I mean, people think domestic abuse is the man to the woman. But now it's 50-50 almost. Some of the stories I read in the paper every morning are horrifying. Of course, mainly unsaved people. But going back to the Witness Leah uh, story... He was chastising the men in his church and pretty brave thing to do. I mean, those guys could have just got up and walked out. And I'll talk about that as well in a minute. But, you know, I hear of people that are women attacking their husbands, boyfriends, lovers, call them what you will. It goes both ways. I've heard of kids attacking their parents. I mean, violent. I saw a documentary, and it was last year. It was uh, about a kid with autism, very powerful documentary. And the... Mother, single mother, said to the film crew, you can film my son. It was based on three families in the UK that had children with autism. And this film crew were given pretty, you know, interesting access, pretty uh, privileged access. And there's one scene in this documentary where this kid comes home from, I think it was Air Cadets or something. He's about 14, big tall kid. Mother's about five foot one. And he's standing over his mother and he's waving his fists in her face. And it's really tense to watch. And he's swearing at his mother and she's standing very calm not antagonizing him 
and the kid just snaps and he marches towards his mother and the film crew had to step in to stop him getting to his mother. This is awful. You've got a cameraman, a producer, and the guy gets between the mother and the son. Never thought in 100 years he'd have to do this. And she says, don't get involved, stay calm, everything's fine. Well, the police were called and the boy was given a, given a talking to. Modern Britain, modern Britain. But let's keep reading on. 17 again. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Absolutely, original sin. And yet at the same time, you don't want to make an excuse for your sins. Nobody makes you sin. Yes, you're born in original sin. We know that. And I'll share the scriptures from Proverbs and Psalms very shortly. But Paul is being pragmatic. He's trying to explain why people do what they do. People are very, very complex. Solomon, the king's anointed, an incredibly intelligent man. He had peace for decades. He, he, you know, he would inherit his father's throne with almost no bloodshed. And he goes along for a period of time, like most godly men in the Old Testament would do. And then the women start to arrive. The idolatry starts to arrive. The money starts to arrive. And he's flat on his face. 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. Going back to the Ten Commandments. You try and keep the Ten Commandments to the letter, to the spirit. You say to yourself, I'm going to keep the Sabbath being the Lord's day. Okay, fine. Switch your websites off. Those of you that have online businesses. Don't do any online banking on a Sabbath because that's the whole point of the Sabbath. Don't gather your sticks like that guy did in Numbers. Don't work on the Sabbath. I mean, shut all your finances down for 24 hours. It's going to be difficult. No online banking. No going to the supermarket. No putting petrol in your car. No doing anything on a 24-hour cycle from evening to the following day. It gets very difficult. And I can't think of many people that do that. Never mind putting on your suit, you know, putting on your suit and tie and doing a nine-to-five. Just violate it in the spirit. Violate it in the letter, like online banking or what have you. Technically, you've broken the Sabbath. And the scripture says that if you break one aspect of the law, you've broken all of the aspects of the law. Going back to my point, the law is not your friend. It's not there to help you out. Yes, it keeps on the straight and narrow. It sharpens your mind. It keeps you closer to the Lord. But it's not your ally. We have an advocate. We have a friend, a mediator, who will come alongside us, being the Lord Jesus Christ. Take him out of the equation. We're sunk. Every other religious system in the world thinks that you can make it to heaven, paradise, define it as you will, without someone there for you. It's like a court scene. You go to a courtroom, you've got the judge, the prosecuting attorney. Where's my defense lawyer? He's not here. What? There's no one to defend me? No, you've got to defend yourself. We've had two great lawyers in the UK. We've had a guy called George Mansfield and a guy called Anthony Scrivener. Top QCs. If you're not British, you wouldn't have heard of them. But they are top British barristers. George Carman is long dead. Scrivener is still alive. QCs, Queen's Counselors. Top defence. We call them barristers in Britain, but overseas, the term uh, lawyer would, would explain their, their roles. If you have those guys representing you in the UK, there's every chance you'd get off because they were brilliant defense attorneys. Carmen won most of his cases. Scrivener has won most of his cases, like I think 80%. So if you've got the money, because these guys aren't cheap, they will work for you and they will get you off. But imagine arriving in court, third heaven, you're naked, in the presence of an all-being, an all-powerful God, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipresent, he knows everything from beginning to end. And there's no one there to represent you. I mean, just think about that for, just for a few seconds. And the devil's standing in the corner. 
He knows all about you. He got Solomon to mess up. He got David to mess up. He got Paul to go back under the law. Never mind Noah. Never mind Jacob. Never mind Gideon. All that. All that crowd. Yeah, Peter as well. And he's going back and forth with you. But you honor. He did this. She did that. I saw this. I saw that. And you know, within five seconds, you're in trouble. And then someone comes into the room. And of course, that's our advocate. Said, Hold on a second. That guy's sin is covered. That's the good news, which we have. But nobody else has it if they're not born again. 19. For the good that I would not, but evil which I would not, that I do. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Paul is so honest. And yet what really gets under my skin is when I come across street preachers online. And I'll discuss them during a future message. On the streets, in their countries, mainly America, mm-hmm. preaching lordship salvation. If you don't live it, you lose it, etc., etc., etc. And it gets up my nose. And this poor person on Facebook this morning saying, I'm in great pain, physically and probably spiritual. Where are the brethren? I can't pay my rent. I'm struggling. I've got this, I've got that going on. I'm going to just kill myself. And that person would come across one of these preachers online and say, I'm not even saved. These guys are saying, I'm not even saved. They're saying, if I have these feelings, I'm not even saved. I might just cut my wrist, just cut my throat. And that's the damage that some of these Lordship Salvation people do. The flip side is you join a liberal church and you've got a couple of guys there married, a couple of women married. And we have a guy in our, in our town. He's a, he's a Church of England chaplain, vicar. And we see him every so often and he's in a relationship with another man. And they both look the same. They both dress the same. And nobody in this church would dare question it because it's now legal. Two men can marry. Two women can marry. So you've gone from one extreme, Lordship salvation. If you don't live it, you lose it. To do what you want. It's all good. The Lord loves you. Do what thou wilt. Do what thou wilt, as Alistair Crowley once said. But Paul knew just what was going on. In my flesh, middle parts of 18, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. He knows perfectly well what he is capable of doing. He was a great scholar before he was saved. He could write anybody under the desk. I mean, people say, I can drink you under the table. He could write you under the table. He knew Hebrew, he knew Greek, he knew Latin, Aramaic. He was a great scholar. And yet, when he met the man from Galilee, flat in his face. For the first time in his life, he knew that he was no good. That's why it says in 19 again, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Paul, you're not saved. That's what these guys would say. Paul, you shouldn't have an old nature. Paul, you're not, you're not a born again man. You're a lost sinner. I don't sin. And these people believe this. I've been a Christian 25 years, they say. I don't sin anymore. But you're all sinners. But I don't sin. And you think these people are fruitcakes. They are deluded. And go back to the Witness Lee account. Some of these guys are probably very ruthless at home, very selfish, very tight, very mean. But on the outward appearance, you know, to observe such people, you think, wow, I'm in the presence of holiness. Can I shake your hand, please, sir? You say you've never sinned? I must shake your hand. How have you done it? But this man here, the Apostle Paul, would beg to differ. 21. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So Paul wants to do good. We want to do good. We're in Bristol for 10 days. We've got street work lined up. We've got some new tracks. We've got the bullhorn. We've got a lot of goals. We've got places to visit this week. We're all well intended. We're not here for our health. We're not here for the fun of it. This takes a lot of planning. I mean, we know when we go out of this house, we are under satanic attack. 
We know that. The devil's going to be all over us like a rash. And his minions will come over to us and church people perhaps and maybe the police, maybe town hall officials. You can't stand here. You're too divisive, etc., etc. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil was present with me. Yes, okay, Paul, we agree with you. But we keep pushing on. 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Inward man, born again man, the seed of God. First John says that to be born again you don't sin. What's the context? It's the inner man. It's Christ inside of you. Christ inside of us, you can't sin. But the old man can easily sin. Go back to Jesus again. There is, there is uh, nobody good but God. No one is sinless but God. No one is perfect but God. There isn't a just man on earth that doeth good and sinneth not. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Of course, the law, like I say, is good for your soul. It can convert you. It can break you down. It was John Wesley who said, if he met someone on the street and he was able to spend an hour with such a person, he would spend, I think, 50 minutes on the law. Break you down. Guilty, 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 guilty. And then the last 10 minutes of a 60-minute conversation, but Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust. What must I do to be saved? Believe in Lord Jesus Christ, now shall be saved. But I see, 23, another law in my members, hands, feet, eyes, ears, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Eyes cause you to lust. You get some taste in the air. That smells nice. I'm going to have a nice meal tonight. But it doesn't agree with you. But I want a nice meal. Or you, you walk to the supermarket, like I did a few days ago. And I saw bottles of Coke. And I haven't drunk Coke in a long time. I thought, oh, I miss that taste of Coke. But loads of sugar. I think eight teaspoons of sugar in a typical can of Coke. And I thought, keep walking, James. Keep walking. But that is true. I was tempted to buy a bottle of Coke. I mean, it wouldn't have killed me. But I thought, it's just too tempting. Because I buy one bottle of Coke. And I go back and buy another bottle of Coke. And another bottle of Coke. And next thing you know, I'm drinking a bottle every night. I guess that's my weakness. But for other people, it could be a bottle of wine. It could be food, which will shoot your cholesterol level up. It can be 101 things. And next thing you know... You had a fellowship with the Lord. 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Present tense. He doesn't say, O wretched man that I was. It's like before Abraham was, I am. Present tense. And the cults try and change it to, before Abraham was, I was around. Or before Abraham was, I have been. No, no, no. Before Abraham was, I am. I am that I am. Present tense. O wretched man that I am. Right here, right now. Paul speaking, he's been saved 25 years. He's been to the third heaven. I guess he knows more about this than we do. Who, not what, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? My filthy old man. I've got bad blood. I've got a bad body. I've got a bad brain. I'm no good. Hence why I came to the Savior in the first place. I can't save myself. I can't even keep the Sabbath. I can't break bread every Sunday, I might be sick, I might be late arriving to a place of fellowship, I can't worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, I'm not always good to my neighbour, I don't love the Lord like I should do, and therefore I disobey, I dishonour my mother and my father. You break one of the commandments, you see it, it's like a domino effect, it knocks down all the others, you can't get around it, you can't miss it, 
25 and I'll close. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He wants to serve the Lord, and he would do so. We, all five of us, want to serve the Lord for the next ten days, and we will do so. We, all five of us, will stumble over the next ten days in different ways. We may lose our tempers, we may uh, be unkind, we may be short with each other, we may get cut up in traffic, we may... uh, get into an altercation on the streets. We may do a number of things. This is just basic stuff, nothing on a grand scale, but I will discuss that probably tomorrow morning now. So we are here for the right purposes. Paul was left on the earth for the right purposes. Paul wanted to get people saved, and he did. He wanted to edify people, and he did. He wanted to explain to people why they still sin. Going back to my title of this message, why do I still sin? You sin because you are a sinner. You sin because your blood is no good. You sin because your body or bodies are no good. You sin because your brain or brains are no good. We are wired incorrectly. We are no good. And even after we are saved, we are still no good. And therefore, I'm going to rebuke some of these online street preachers via this message. I'm going to rebuke them because what they are saying to unsaved people is, in reality, you must be perfect to get saved. You must stay perfect to stay saved. And if you don't stay perfect after you are saved, you go to hell. Or if you're not living perfect after you are saved, you are never saved to begin with. And I've seen these self-righteous Pharisees on the streets, mainly in America, although we've got a few in this country, that preach an impossible message. And yet you know perfectly well they don't live it themselves. So we looked at Romans chapter 7. We've looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And this will be at least two to a perhaps three-part message. But it needs to be done because we need to help those that are saved, uh, not to be buffeted, not to be tossed to and fro. The biggest problem for the early church were how to shut the mouths of the Judaizers that were going around saying, you must be circumcised. You must observe the law of Moses. Uh, You must keep the Sabbath. You must do this. You must do that. And it drove the Apostle Paul crazy. You've got Gentiles who were pagans before they were saved who couldn't speak Hebrew, of course, couldn't speak Aramaic, had almost no knowledge of the Old Testament set up. You've got these Judaizers going around wearing their long dresses, and I'll discuss that in part two, just uh, putting the fear of God into people. You're inferior, you're a Gentile, you're nothing special, we're Jews, we're the real thing, etc., etc. And people say, you know what, if this is religion, you can keep it. And that was one of Paul's biggest battles. It was hard enough for the Jews in the first century to believe on Jesus. And stay with Jesus. That's what Hebrews is all about. Like if we sin willfully, there's no more sacrifice of sins. Well, of course not. The Messiah is being and gone. This is over in John 6, 6, how some, in fact, many of his disciples walked no more with him. Where did they go? Back to the law. They threw the lot in with the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And Paul had to deal with the Jewish problem of staying with Jesus and the Gentile problem of don't going over to Jewry. Like that's what Galatians is all about. So my goal for this morning and I pray the Lord will bless this message, is to explain why we do what we do, why we still sin, that we don't love our sin, we don't justify our sin, we don't turn a blind eye to our sin. At the same time, we don't kid ourselves, we don't deceive ourselves, we don't say, well, I don't sin any longer, I'm holier than all of you lot, you know, you're all miserable, reprobate sort of thing, and I'm going to help you all out. No, 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 be honest with people, just level with people, explain the two natures if you can. Not in great detail on the street, of course not. But don't 
be holy than thou. But Romans 7 is very clear, two natures. Ecclesiastes 7 is clear for imputation, faith alone. And like I say, nobody was born again until probably Pentecost because the Holy Spirit hadn't yet been given, John chapter 7. And I'll discuss that next time. So Lord, please bless today's message. Please bless part one of at least two or maybe three messages on the on the all-important and all-relevant question that we all ask ourselves. Why do we or why do I still sin? And we pray uh, for your blessing on this, dear Lord, for today and for the next several mornings as we aim to do morning studies. And we also pray, Lord, that you'll bless the outreach in Bristol for the next 10 days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Okay, so this will be day number two. And so far, we got off to a great start. We spent a good few hours yesterday in Bristol city centre. A nice city, uh, very spacious, no atmosphere, no police, no security. So far, so good. I was able to street preach for an hour and a half. We all had some good conversations uh, with a wannabe Jehovah's Witness. Uh, Patrick spoke to a couple from uh, Nigeria. Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan, excuse me. Um, Helen spoke to a lady from uh, Zimbabwe, I believe. Two students. Some students. Uh, Enrique spoke with Helen uh, to three ecumenical charismatics. I think so far, she hasn't spoken to anyone. But that could all change very quickly. So no complaints. It's a nice city. The weather's very nice. Uh, the word of God was preached. The banner was seen by many people. And as always, we met some very interesting characters. In fact, as we were packing up, uh, ready to come home yesterday, a guy came over to us and he said, uh, I'm born again. And I could tell he was having a bit of a joke with us with a fixed grin on his face. And I said, wonderful, you know, when we are saved today, thought, oh, here we go. And he said, yeah, I got born again. And afterwards I started drinking. I started to do drugs and started to smoke. And I thought normally that, comes before you're saved not after but even if that was a true story you don't boast about that and he had this fixed grin in his face as if it was some big joke and I thought well maybe that will feed into today's message why do I still sin and we looked uh, yesterday at Ecclesiastes chapter 7 which took us to Romans chapter 7 and the wisest man in the Old Testament was Solomon and he made the case how nobody is good Uh, no one is on the earth that doesn't sin And Paul the Apostle is the wisest man for the New Testament, and he would also echo that. It was once put that when the Lord receives uh, someone into his family, he will judge you as a son. If you uh, fall foul of the Lord, and you will, like you fall foul of your parents or parents, your parent or parents will judge you, and they will judge you as a child, as a beloved child. If you're not saved, you are judged as a sinner. It's as simple as that. When you die, if you die without Christ, you go into hell and you pay for your sins in hell. And that's what uh, the lake of fire is all about. Liars, unbelievers, cowards, so on and so forth. And like I say, you pay for your sins in hell. But for today, for now, for the body of Christ, we are focusing on why the saved sin. And therefore, like I say, when we sin as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are judged as sons of God. It's like a good parent gets the belt out as and when is necessary. Doesn't beat the kid black and blue. Doesn't put the kid into hospital. Of course, that's child abuse. But a good parent will take the belt to its child as and when it's necessary. Otherwise, the child will go astray. In fact, it's been said so many times that most of the people that are in jail are in jail nine times out of ten because they weren't judged by their parents. They went off the rails 
and many of these people in jail never had a father and they were raised by a single parent and it was very difficult for the single parent and many single parents just want an easy life it can also be said of you know a family where there is a mum and a dad and they also want an easy life but i think that's why the proverb says it's not going to destroy your child if you use corporal punishment every so often not child abuse of course but just corporal punishment and perhaps that would go some way and explain why the jails are full but ultimately the jails are full because of original sin going back to what i said yesterday morning we've got bad blood bad bodies bad brains we are made in the image of god absolutely body soul and spirit but due to our parents sinning it's just not everything else of kilter nothing was the same after the fall of man so let's start today if we may, and I can easily see this will be a three-part message from Romans chapter 6. And Romans is a great epistle to read. It pretty much explains everything, like who the Lord is, why the Lord does what he does, who we are, whether saved or unsaved, and why we do what we do. And I think what would be really helpful is if some of the uh, brothers around the world that do street work, and maybe some of them may, his- may uh, listen to this recording could be more honest with their audiences. But I know why they are the way that they are. And I think to be fair to some of the brothers, they've done 25, 30 years of street preaching, and it does harden you. It does harden you. You're on that street corner, you're very vulnerable. People are walking over towards you, wanting to fire insults at you, wanting to shock you, like the guy yesterday, and he thought he could shock us about his drinking antics and drug antics and who knows what else antics. doesn't shock me at all. Uh, I'm not a child, but... I can understand why some of the brothers are hardened because they've had 25, 30 years of insults. They've been physically assaulted. They've been cussed at. They've been slandered. They've had church people trying to pull them up. And we get that ourselves, this ministry. But that doesn't make it right to preach another gospel. That doesn't justify the preaching of lordship salvation or if you don't live it, you lose it. Two wrongs never make a right. And that's one of the reasons why I want to speak today and probably tomorrow morning on the subject of why do I sin? I'm going to aim this at save people. Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, look at verse 1, please. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That, of course, is the key. The Lord gives you a set of standards, and we can refer to that as the Ten Commandments, if you will. Technically, not given to the church. Technically given to the Jews under the law. But we can use the Ten Commandments for spiritual application today. Ten Commandments, not ten suggestions. The Lord can never lower his standards. He tells you how it's going to be. He says it's going to be A, B, and C. And if you don't live it, you are, you know, we don't reach that standard. Of course, you won't. You fall foul of my law. He can't lower it. If he lowers it, he's no longer the Lord. So he has a dilemma. He knows we can't reach it. He knows we can't live it. So what's he going to do? Well, ultimately, he's going to have to send someone to help us out. And that someone, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death... We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Well, of course, 
we shouldn't serve sin in a perpetual way. Just because we are saved doesn't mean we won't sin, of course. And now we are saved, we look at sin in a very different light. Before we were saved, it was no big deal. Before we were saved, we did our own thing. I know I did. But when I got saved, I saw things very differently. I was super aware of blasphemy. That was probably the first thing that really hit me like a tank. I mean, I used to blaspheme before I got saved. OMG was an expression of mine. I'm afraid that's a very common term in Britain, OMG. Very common in America. In fact, it's common all over the world. I remember some years ago, I was in Egypt. And I remember listening to the tour guide showing us some of the uh, sites in Cairo. And uh, she spoke very good English. And she said, OMG, once, OMG, twice. OMG three times, I thought, and a good Muslim woman too. I was shot. <laughs> but I thought, there you are, you see, it's global. It's not just in Britain. It's not just in America. It's all over the world. I was in Romania, uh, 02, and some of the uh, street people that had been taken into this missionary couple's home spoke English, broken, but you know you could get by with it. OMG. I thought, wow, Romania, Britain, America, Cairo... Probably Spain, probably Singapore, probably every other place on the face of the earth. That's due to television. I'm sure of it. Hollywood, I'm pretty sure of it. But when I got saved, I thought to myself, I can no longer say that. I don't want to say that. It was one of the first things that really hit me like a tank. My dirty mouth. So I see sin now in a different light. I saw sin then in a different light. But if you're not saved, it's no big deal. You say what you want to say. But here... 61626364 make it very clear that we are in Christ we were baptized into his death verse 3 in a spiritual sense we are raised from the dead verse 4 in a spiritual sense verse 5 we have been planted together in the likeness of his death and also feeding into his resurrection in a spiritual sense so i think when paul speaks about this from chapter 6 he's seeing this from the standpoint of the lord the Lord looks on man on the, uh, on the heart, whereas man looks on man on the outward appearance. That's what James 2 is all about. I see people around this table this morning. I see you from your you know, external appearances. I see you as you are in the flesh. But the Lord sees your hearts. Romans chapter 4. A man believes on the Lord, and the Lord sees the heart. Justification by faith. A man gets saved. He does this and that. He gets baptized. That's justification in the sight of man. James chapter 2. And here I think what Paul is saying is that when we are saved, Almighty God sees Christ in us, which goes back to what I said yesterday morning about the seed inside of us cannot sin. The seed has to be Christ, Christ in us, Christ the hope of glory. But these verses make the case very clearly that as far as the Lord is concerned, we are in the heavenly places right now. We are reigning and ruling with the Lord in a spiritual sense right now. So we are perfect our standing, our positional standing in the Lord is sinless. But our practical standing is the problem that we all have to deal with. Short-temperedness, not wanting to blaspheme. And every so often I find myself in a difficult situation. I get very stressed and I can feel myself wanting to just shout. And I, I can honestly say this, I can feel myself wanting to start swearing again. And I haven't sworn in 15 years. That's the truth. But the old tongue starts to go and I want to just rip you know i get so frustrated and i can't do something or i get to the pulpit and i can't get the tripod sorted out and the wind starts to blow and i'm on a tight timetable and i start getting stressed it's the old man i've got to keep my mouth shut thankfully you know i haven't yet 
shot a four letter word out. I wouldn't say it, would, it couldn't happen, but I hope it wouldn't happen. But that's the picture of the old man and new man, the struggle trying to control what I say and what I do, going back to what you see. You know, it's not just massive things, it can be minor things, like the uh, Coca Cola analogy. You know, I want to buy a bottle of Coke. To most people, that's a bit of a joke. But for me, you know, I liked Coke before I was saved. And if I started to drink Coke again, and I mean Coca-Cola, not cocaine, <laughs> it could become a problem for me. I just want to put that on the record so no one misunderstands me. So that's the struggle that we are in. And for some people, it can be a huge problem. For some people, they battle this all of the time. It's like going into a supermarket. And I've seen people in supermarkets, and they get their calculator out, and they start working out the calories in the food. They start working out the cost of the food really, really thorough. Can I afford to buy this? How many calories is it? They're not even saved. <laughs> Gives you some idea. But here you are raised in the Lord. And sixth one, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And it's worth just saying this because we get attacked. Those of us which hold to once saved, always saved, we get attacked. And they accuse us of easy believism. They accuse us of cheap grace. But grace is grace. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, all of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Okay, fine, we understand that. The imagery is very vivid. Christ lived, he died, was resurrected. All literal, and when we get saved, we receive such in a spiritual way. In a figurative sense, we are still physically on the earth. We still have to eat, drink, sleep. We still have to do our business. We still have to live in this world. But in the stamp, from the standpoint of the Lord, he sees us in a perfect way. Six, and I move on, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. So your old man is crucified with him. You received a supernatural, spiritual circumcision when you got born again. The Lord did something to your heart that we don't really understand. He not only gave us Christ's imputed righteousness, like Joseph's multicolor coat, if you will, which his brothers took from him. They wanted to dethrone him like the Jews would do uh, with Jesus. And they put uh, a crown of thorns on his head to mock his um, messiahship. And the same would be true of uh, Joseph thrown into uh, a pit and later sold to Ishmaelites, Gentiles. It's quite clear to me that those in the Old Testament wanted to stop Joseph, reverse his dreams, his prophecies, like they would do with Jesus, because they knew that if he was able to fulfill what he said he would fulfill, the, the, the entire world would be changed. And on top of that, I think it's quite fair to say that some of the Jewish leaders that clashed with the Lord Jesus Christ were anti-Gentile. I believe that. I think that was a sentiment that... It's still found in, in Jewish circles today. A lot of Jews don't think much of Gentiles. I know they don't. They look upon us as if we're filth. Vermin. That's why it's difficult to get into you know, a good dialogue with Jewish people. Not all, but some. And that's why I think Peter was uh, so severely reprimanded in Antioch, Galatians 2. And also John, the uh, son of Zebedee, wanted to consume these Samaritans up. There was no compassion there. Because from John's uh, standpoint, he saw them as unclean savages. And here, from the Lord's standpoint, he sees us as sinless saints, redeemed, washed in the blood. But that doesn't help our daily struggle. Going back to what I want to do, I don't do. And what I should do, I don't do. A wretched man that I am. Let's keep moving on. Go to 2 Corinthians, please. 
So Romans 6, as I would suggest, or I will suggest it, Romans 6 is going to be the Lord looking at us from heaven. Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on man on the inward appearance. 2 Corinthians, Paul continues to build on this fascinating subject and a subject which affects all of us. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, look at verse 16, please. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. So obviously you think of Jesus Christ on earth, you think of Christ Jesus in a third heaven. You think of Jesus Christ being seen on the earth by the apostles. You think of Christ Jesus being seen by the apostle Paul in the third heaven. There is a distinction. Jesus Christ is no longer on the earth. Jesus Christ is no longer a baby. Jesus Christ is no longer feeding 4,000, feeding 5,000. Jesus Christ is no longer walking on the water. Jesus Christ is no longer giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. Christ Jesus is now our eternal high priest up in the third heaven interceding for us. And that's why you were told in 1 John to stay in fellowship with the Lord. Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that we can't understand. So you've got Jesus Christ interceding for us. You have the Holy Spirit interceding for us. Let's keep reading on. Look at uh, 17, please. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new in the sense of how the Lord sees you. He now sees you as a sanctified, saved saint. He not only has given you everlasting life, he has sanctified you. He's made you holy. He's given you a desire to live for him. Something which was unprecedented, something which didn't even come into your mind before you were saved. Before I was saved, I enjoyed my sin. I enjoyed my life. Before I was saved, I did my own thing. I was very comfortable. But when I got saved, I knew straight away that something gigantic, something monumental had, had occurred. So now you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. That in itself is quite amazing. I mean, not only have you been pardoned, because we are all criminals in the eyes of the Lord, but now Christ, the eternal Son of God, is inside of us. Going back to the seed of Christ. The Holy Spirit is inside of us. God the Father is inside of us. Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he is a new creature, new birth, born again. I got an email two days ago, and the email went along the lines of this, that the new birth isn't for the church, only the Jew needs to be born again. Uh, that teaching it today for the body of Christ is incorrect. I've heard this many times before, and these verses get put to me uh, from other parts of the New Testament, and they say, well, Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, uh, who was under the law. You must be born again. Yes, that's true, but he is looking towards a new covenant. If you're not born again, you're not saved. If you're not regenerated, you're lost. It's as simple as that. New creature, new creation. Old things are passed away in the sense of you now live for the Lord. You live to the Lord. You're crucified with him. You've been uh, buried with him. You've been resurrected with him. Behold, all things are become new. You get saved. You start off on cloud nine. You get saved and your entire outlook on life is changed. Completely changed. You love this book, which beforehand... You couldn't have been paid to read. For me, this was a closed book. It was a boring book. I had no interest in the Bible before I was saved. I got saved. I couldn't stop reading it. 
starts with the scripture, reading it, trying to understand it, wanting to explain it to friends and family. My thought life changes. My views towards my thought life changed. My actions changed. My daily activities changed. I lost interests in different things. I was careful with what I would say, what I think, what I would hear. That's a picture of the new man, the new woman, the new creation, which is also supernatural. You can't save yourself. A guy came over to us yesterday and he said, what comes first, confession or baptism? And I, th- I thought to myself, what a question. And I said to him, confession. But he wanted to argue baptism. I know what he was trying to say. He was trying to say this, that you're saved by being baptized and then you confess your mouth in the presence of many people. And I said, no, you got it wrong, my friend. You confess the Lord, if you will. Then you get baptized afterwards. And he said to me, well, there's a chap here. He'll be back tomorrow. Go and speak to him. He can help you out, sort of thing. And I said, well, maybe he can come over and speak to us. Maybe we can help him out. And maybe this guy was well-intended, but he wasn't a saved man. And this guy who came over to me yesterday had been speaking to a chap not far from where I was street preaching, being discipled, I guess. But again, this is the problem of people's misunderstanding of the new birth. Not long after that, another guy uh, spoke to... Uh, one of our group and mentioned about uh, the new birth and he didn't like the idea that you're baptized once in a supernatural sense into the body of Christ for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body and have all been made to drink into one spirit um, 1 Corinthians 11 Ephesians 4 4 oh no 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 you said that's not that's not right you got it all wrong you said that's not how it works and I thought if I wasn't standing here holding my banner you wouldn't have come over to me. You wouldn't have engaged me. You wouldn't be giving me a Bible study. You'd have no time for me. But because I am standing here, or we are all standing here, I should say, all five of us, this guy wants to come over and help us out. It's just ridiculous. In fact, somebody came over to one of our group yesterday and said, what church do you go to? Same old question. Where are you from? Where do you worship? And I could hear how this was going. And I walked over to this gentleman and I said to him, are you born again, sir? Just cut through it. And he said he was. And I said to him, praise the Lord. Are you here to give out tracts today? No, I'm not, he said. Are you here to preach the gospel today? No, I'm not, he said. And I knew he wasn't going to do anything at all. He just wanted to bend our ear. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I'm sorry to hear that. And he turned around and walked off. And I said to him, so it's a private religion, is it? Couldn't help it. Self-righteous. But it's typical. If we weren't now on the streets doing what we were doing and what we're going to do today and tomorrow, they wouldn't give you the time of day. So you are perfect in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. God has made you alive. He has put his son inside of you. He is working in you each and every day. He is conforming you to the image of his son each and every day. From heaven's standpoint, you're sinless. From heaven's standpoint, all of your past, present, and future sins are finished, washed away, pardoned, covered by the blood. That is wonderful news. But in reality, we still live in this world. We still have our old blood. When you got saved, you didn't get a blood transfusion. It would be nice if you did, but you didn't. Your blood is still the same. My blood is still the same. Our blood is still the same. We still live in this fallen world. We still struggle each and every day. That's just how it's going to be. But we see sin in a different light. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. So the problem seems to be that you've got one or two views, like I said from yesterday. The first view is that once you're saved, you don't sin. Like the big sins. And if you do sin, like the big sins, either you're not saved or you've lost your salvation. 
There's no middle ground, it would appear. I don't know why, but for most people, there's no middle way, if you will. The Armenians say you can lose it, and the Calvinists say, well, if you don't live holy, maybe you were never chosen to begin with. I mean, talk about a spin. Talk about putting people into a bad situation. I remember listening to a sermon some years ago online by a well-known preacher, and he said this. He said, I've been saved decades and he said, uh, I know what my sins are, and I know what your sins are. And he said, don't take my sins away from me. I won't take your sins away from you. Meaning we're still fleshly. We're still carnal. We're not perfect. I thought, yeah, I know what he's saying. He's saying, if you think you're going to be perfect, if you think you can conquer the old man or the old nature, this isn't a church for you. You can go, you know, go and join a holiness church if you want to. And of course, you then fall into the trap of the Witness Lee story. That's a holiness church. His church is holiness. And he gets up that Sunday morning, like I said yesterday, and he starts to lambast his elders, his deacons, his pastors for being mean to their wives, to their children. That's a holiness church. They can't even live their own message. They can't reach their own standards. I think it was John Wesley who said, if you drink alcohol, just a sip of alcohol. Hellfire. No concept. In fact, John Wesley said that consuming alcohol, not to be intoxicated, just to, just to consume alcohol in a leisurely way was the equivalent to the most heinous sin in Scripture. And he put the fear of God into his congregations because he had a very anti-alcohol uh, view, which is understandable, and I will concur with that. But he went to the extreme, that if you drunk it occasionally, you were committing or you were, the, you were guilty of doing the worst sin imaginable in Scripture. And his congregation just shook with fear. Booth too. And yet you look at the company these people kept. I mean, let's be honest. You've got these guys preaching holiness. And yet Booth took money from Joshua Older. He wasn't a saved man. In fact, Spurgeon took money from Joshua Older. A big owner in Croydon, South London, to build Spurgeon's tabernacle. Still there. Booth took money from Rothschild, an unsaved Jew. And he's saying to his congregations, if you don't live it, you lose it. And he's taking money from people with dubious backgrounds. I just can't understand it sometimes. And I know what's going on. These guys are deceived. These guys are deluded. And I think also these guys want to keep you in bondage to their churches. If they were to say this, you're all born again, people. You're washed in the blood, forever saved, past, present, and future sins. Half of that crowd wouldn't go back the next Sunday. Let's be honest. They wouldn't go back. They are in fear of losing their salvation. First Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at 15 please. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in another man's matters. What's Peter saying here? I'm a sinless man, aren't I? I can't sin any longer. Why is he saying to me here, to be careful that I don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other man's matters? If I can't sin, why is he even saying this? If it's impossible for me to sin, and that's what these holiness people say, why is Peter telling me and Vicarious, those of us around the table this morning, to be careful that we don't become guilty of murder, and I mean physical murder, theft, I mean literal theft, evildoers, that's pretty broad, or a busybody, like a gossiper, going back to James's warning about the tongue. If you can't sin, if you are now sinless in a practical sense, I don't mean from a positional uh, perspective but from a practical perspective if you can't sin if you are now perfect as someone like john wesley would have you believe or william booth or other holiness preachers what's peter speaking about here 
Why is he warning Christians not to be found guilty of murder? If you couldn't commit murder, if you couldn't be guilty of theft, look at 16. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Peter is aiming this at saved people. Now the jury is out as to whether or not you want to say he's aiming this at saved Jews or Gentiles. Dispensationalists are split on this. I've heard views from both sides and they say that Peter as a Jew, is writing to save Jews. Others say, no, he's writing to anyone who will read his epistle. In some ways, it doesn't really matter, because grace is going to be grace, whether it's Jew or Gentile. And that's not always universally accepted by some people, but from the standpoint of heaven, it's going to be imputation from Old Testament into New Testament. But I go back one more time to my statement. If we can't sin, if we, the redeemed, born again, in Christ cannot sin, why is he warning us to avoid suffering as a murderer, a thief, or as an evildoer. It's clear to me that you can do these things. You shouldn't do these things, of course not. There's no justification for being a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer. But if it's not possible to sin, this wouldn't be found in Scripture. Go to 1 John, and I'll close for this morning. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John is a very difficult epistle to exegete. It's only five chapters. And I... Did a verse-by-verse study on 1 John back in 2010, 11, I think. And I sat down last week to read 1 John. In fact, I put the whole of September aside to read all of Proverbs, all of Psalms, and a good parts of the New Testament in preparation for this morning's messages. And unfortunately, I haven't finished the Psalms. I'm up to Psalm 106, 107, because I want to profile David. And I'll do that probably tomorrow morning. Because David, I think, is an interesting man to profile. And to my surprise, I'm still in the New Testament. We haven't even got to the Psalms yet. We'll do that tomorrow. But First John is a difficult epistle to exegete. And I think it was put quite well by one uh, late uh, preacher that some of First John could have application for the millennium. I thought, yeah, he could be right. Because there's some difficult parts in First John which don't harmonize nicely with the Pauline epistles. 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, look at verse 6 if you will. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Context fellowship, not salvation. We had a tract designed for us not long ago from a, a very uh, well-intended party, a friend of the ministry, and they wanted to put this on the tract for salvation. And I got back to the person who was designing the tract for us, and I said, thank you very much, such and such, but First John 1.6 isn't aimed at an unsaved person. First John 1.6 is aimed at a saved person. You're not saved by confessing your sins to the Lord. You're saved by believing on the Lord. You're saved by believing him. That may sound like semantics to some people, but I don't think it is. Confession won't save anyone. I mean, Judas confessed. He wasn't saved. Once you are saved, confession is a whole different ballgame. If we say the redeemed, that we have fellowship with him, not salvation, not everlasting life, but fellowship each and every day, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. In other words, if we say we're super duper to our friends and foes or friends and peers, what have you, and yet we're not doing so, we're hypocritical, Walking in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, 
We are fellowship one with another, corporate fellowship, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us small sin. Don't be a hypocrite. He's saying this, that if you are born again and you are offering yourself as being holy and living above reproach and you're not, you are hypocrites. But if you are uh, living the way you should live and you continue to live like you should, you don't break your fellowship with the Lord. That's good news. Eight, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I love that verse. If we, the redeemed, say that we have no sin, like I no longer sin, I haven't sinned in 25 years. So many people say that. Yeah. Or oh, you filthy sinner, you're going to burn. I'm no longer a sinner. Kidding yourself. And then someone comes along who knows that person and starts laughing their heads off. That's my husband over there. That's my father over there. That's my brother over there. That's my uncle over there. I could tell you so much about him. We deceive ourselves. There you are, you see. And the truth is not in us. So you are deceiving yourself. If you make this blunder, you are deceiving the Lord. But ultimately, you are deceiving your crowd. Some of these uh, Lordship Salvation people are leaders of churches. And they get up every Sunday morning in their pulpits. They lay the law down. And I can only imagine how it must feel to hear that sort of a sermon every week. This guy's so holy. I wish I was that holy. I never forget the first time I heard John MacArthur preach about holiness. And I said to myself at the time, does this guy even need a saviour? He sounds so holy. And he says there's no old nature, and yet other times he says there is an old nature. He's not consistent. I got his reference Bible. I read it many times. I got one section. I can give you one section where he says there's old, there, there, is a, there is no old nature, and if you do this or that, you're not saved. And yet I got another section where he says that you're never going to be uh, totally sinless in this world. You're going to struggle. Uh, it won't be the same for, you know, for two, two people. No two people's sins are the same. He's not consistent. In fact, I saw a clip of him online just a few days ago. One of our, one of my FB friends put a link up. It was a link to one of his church services. And this woman got up and she was in floods of tears. And she said, uh, please help me out. I don't know if I'm saved. I have blasphemous thoughts. I thought, wow, what, what are these thoughts you're having? And, you know, I can't do this. I can't do that. Am I chosen? Have I been chosen? Am I one of the redeemed? Absolute silence in the church. And he does these weekly Q&As apparently. Some of them are quite interesting to watch. And he starts off by saying, do you love the Lord? Do you, love, you, know, do you, do you read his word? Do you do this, do you do that, blah, blah. And she gives all the right answers. I thought, you're saved, sister. Sit down. <laughs> you're in good company. And to his credit, he was giving us some helpful answers, this and that. Got a bit tied up with Calvinism for a few minutes. Uh, but she was in such a mess because she spent time in his church hearing this wonderful man who's never sinned a day in his life, never lived in the real world, his whole family is saved, or so he believes. And most people that go to his church cannot relate to him. And she's thinking to herself, I'm not a saved woman. This guy's so holy, kidding himself, deceiving himself. Look at nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you're sinners, aren't you, John? You're sinners, aren't you, Mr. Wesley? You're sinners, aren't you, Mr. Booth? Why are you told to confess your sins? You don't have any sins. Now you're born again. You don't sin, right? If we, the redeemed, confess our sins. But why, John? We don't have any sins. I'm a sinless man. I've been a sinless man for 15 years. They believe this. I don't teach this. I could list some well-known street preachers who will tell you with a straight face they don't sin and haven't sinned. And I have to stop myself from laughing sometimes. If we confess our sins because you will sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you sin willfully, they say, you lose your salvation. If you sin willfully, it says over in Hebrews, there's no more sacrifice for sins. They put that on you. And they tie you up with that. And you say to yourself, well, I must have lost my salvation 12 years ago. Based on what they say. Because if I sin willfully, and I have sinned, I have sinned willfully, I've lost it. According to what they say. But here it says, I can be forgiven. And they twist the scripture. And they tie you up with these verses. And you, go, you, know, you don't even be coming or going. And this poor woman, crying her, crying her eyes out. Crying her heart out, you know, to John MacArthur in his holiness church. And he has to calm her. Because he realizes that what he's preaching is causing people to have an awful, an awful feeling of perhaps I'm not saved. Maybe I'm not one of the redeemed. Or maybe I've lost my salvation. Verse 10 and I'll close. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. So it's so clear to me. If you are saved, you will sin. You shouldn't sin, of course. God's given you power not to sin in a perpetual way. But you will sin. Different levels, sins of omission, sins of commission, but you will sin. And if you think you can't sin, you are in denial. And on top of that, you have an antichrist spirit. Because these verses couldn't be any clearer. John is a saved Jew, writing to saved Jews, perhaps, or Gentiles. But nevertheless, he's addressing the church, and he wants to make it as clear as he can. Don't sin, and yet if you do sin, confess your sins, and you go back into fellowship with the Lord. John would have no time for lordship salvation preachers. He'd have no time for Armenians either. If you don't live it, you lose it. Or if you're living loose, you're not saved. You're not one of the elects. He'd have no time for that either. And when we get to part three, we'll look at this from the standpoint of how David dealt with his sin problem. But we've gone over 40 minutes, so I will leave it there in verse 10 and ask the Lord to bless part two of at least a three-part message. Okay, so this is day number three. And yesterday, by the grace of God, we made it safely to Bath, uh, an interesting town. And we have some video of our trip there. It started off somewhat slow, but nevertheless, tracks were given out. The banner was held up high. Uh, Brother Enrique walked around uh, Bath for a couple of hours holding it high, which is what it's all about, holding up the name of Jesus Christ. John would say that Jesus would have to increase and he would have to decrease. That's tough, but it's true. And I want to continue to speak about the battle of the two natures of the believer. Go to James chapter 2, please. So this will be called, Why Do I Still Sin? Asked from the perspective of a saved person. If you're not saved, you sin because you are a sinner. Simple as that. And the Lord will judge you as a sinner. But once you get saved, and if you sin, and you probably will sin, you'll be judged as a son of God, you are judged as a saved person. James chapter 2, James chapter 2, look at verse 10, if you will. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So if you could keep the whole law, that would be very interesting. But of course you can't keep the whole law. And the whole point of the law, one more time, is to convict you of your sin. To show you that you are a sinner, that you are a lawbreaker, that you are a criminal. And therefore you will cling, you will cleave, you will run to the saviour. It's like somebody's being diagnosed with a sickness. You start to panic, what do I do? I've got maybe six months, maybe a year to live. And you start to go online and you Google remedies, cures, so on and so forth. And then someone says, hey, we've got a cure for you. And you start to clap your hands, thank you Lord. 
and you run to the source and you take what is available to you. And that's what we all did. Some of us 40 years ago, some of us 30 years ago, some of us 20 years ago, some of us 15 years ago. We all ran to the Saviour to be saved. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, Ten Commandments, and yet offend in one point, break one point, literally, or break it in spirit, or in the letter, he is guilty of all. That's a terrible word, guilty. I was able to preach in Bath yesterday for maybe 10 minutes. It felt a lot longer, and a lot of people enjoy themselves. It was a beautiful uh, summer's afternoon, or I should say it was a warm afternoon. We are now in the winter months, I should say, but it felt like a summer's afternoon. And I could see two Jehovah's Witnesses. I could see some uh, musicians. I saw a chap dancing. A lot of people just sitting around basking in, in the nice October sun. Not a care in the world. And if I was to go around to those people one by one and say, do you know that you are guilty in the eyes of the Lord? They wouldn't want to hear it. The churches aren't going to tell them that. And as I was walking up this very steep and very crowded hill, to the right I could see uh, Bath Abbey, an Anglican Abbey. And I could see people standing outside. I could see many tourists uh, near this particular building. And I walked over to them and started to preach. And I thought, you've got people paying to go inside a building. And again, I just put the prices down on tape. Uh, for a family, they want £10. For a child, they want £2. For an adult, they want £4. And I was appalled by that. In fact, I first spotted something like that in 2007. We did some outreach in uh, Canterbury. And I preached a message outside Canterbury Cathedral, chastising them, condemning them, rebuking them, rebuking them for it. And this guy came out, got into a bit of an altercation with me. And you can see it on video when it goes online. But if I was to say to him... You too, my friend, are guilty. He wouldn't want to hear it. And this goes back to the problem we have today when it comes to street preachers, pastors, those that are in organized religion. They seem to fall into one or two camps. Number one, I no longer sin. I'm now a saint, sanctified, washed in the blood. I'm no longer like that. The other view is, well, if you uh, sin, you lose your salvation and go straight to hell. Or if you sin, you've never chosen to begin with. I mean, talk about taking hope away from people. But here, whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend at one point, he is guilty of all. So the law isn't your friend. Get that out of your mind. A lot of people think they are keeping the law. A lot of people think they are keeping the Ten Commandments. You're not even coming near. I mean, to keep the law is impossible. At last count, it's over 600 laws in the Old Testament, civil, ceremonial, not just what you shouldn't do, but what you should do. I mean, you try and do what you should do. That's pretty tough. I know what I shouldn't do, but I can't always do what I should do. And I'll go back to Romans 7 in a few minutes. 11. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou become a transgressor of the law. You can't win either way. You may say, well, I'm not guilty of physical adultery, but how about spiritual adultery? Matthew chapter 5. You may say, I'm not guilty of physical murder, but how about spiritual murder? How about that grudge you can't get rid of? How about that person you can't forgive? How about that brother or sister in the Lord that you won't speak to? And every time you think of that person, you get very angry. Your heart starts to clam up. And if you could, you'd probably do some damage to them. Going back to a conversation I had with a Calvinist elder, a deacon some years ago. And I've shared the story before, but I'll just repeat myself very quickly. And he said this to me. He said, uh, I have a wife and four children and I hate my wife. I hate my wife. And I kill her in my heart every day. 
And I thought, okay, and listen to this chap telling me this story. And to cut a very long story short, a divorce followed, and this guy's gone south. So he would say to me, well, I'm not guilty of adultery. That's what he say to me, perhaps. Yeah, but I said, but how about murder? How about spiritual murder? You see, if you don't do one of these sins, verse 11, you may do one of the other sins. It may not be adultery, but it may be killing. Not physically, but spiritual. Going back to 1 Peter 4, 15. Don't suffer as a murderer. And in the context, I believe, from 1 Peter 4, 15, he's speaking about literal murder, literal theft. You can't be a spiritual busybody. You can be a literal busybody. You can't be a spiritual thief, but you can be a literal thief. In fact, I go on YouTube every so often and I come across people's videos and they are doing reviews and commentaries and exposés on different people. And many times they use people's material and they stop it and they comment, they play it, they stop it. That's theft. They haven't asked that person, can I use your material to rebuke you, to expose you? Technically, that is theft. Because that video that was recorded, regardless of who did it, took time, took effort, took money. You need electricity to get online, to upload your material. You need a camera, you need a microphone, you need a tripod. Someone somewhere had to purchase the equipment to record a message. So when you watch these people online doing a video against someone or speaking against a particular person, I doubt very, very much they've asked a person for their permission to play their material. They've downloaded it, which is theft, and they are playing it. And as they are playing it, they are responding to it. And I would suggest that is theft. Are they bothered? Not at all. They couldn't care less. And yet those same people, many times, are into lordship salvation, and they will condemn you quick enough for committing sins of the flesh, but they won't condemn themselves. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery yet, if thou kill... Thou art become a transgressor of the law. You're going to be condemned one way or another. It's impossible, absolutely impossible, to live a life once you are saved and never sin. At the same time, once you get, uh, once you get saved, you love the Lord. Once you get saved, you loathe lasciviousness. But go back to Romans chapter 7. Let's just remind ourselves uh, what we looked at from day one to this so far three-part message let's never deceive ourselves into thinking that now we are saved we are something special romans chapter 7 romans chapter 7 look at verse 15 if you will for that which i do i allow not for what i would that do i not but what i hate that do i what i hate sin lasciviousness hate it love the lord i delight in the law of the lord i meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. 16. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. For the good that I would not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Did you get that? For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, 
warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You won't find many people calling themselves, O wretched man. I would put money, and I'm not a gambler, but I would put money on the impossibility of someone like John Piper or James White or John MacArthur saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, I hate my sins. Don't believe it. As far as they're concerned, they've conquered the old man. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Well, no one, of course. You're now sinless. You don't sin anymore. And if you're sinning, you're not saved. Or if you are sinning, you've lost your salvation. That's not what Paul says. 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. The mind of Christ, the new man, I serve the law of God in a spiritual sense, and yet even that is pretty difficult. But with the flesh, the old man, the, the Adamic nature, the law of sin. And you still think you're pretty down-to-earth sort of person? You still think you've got it all worked out? According to this, you haven't got it worked out. According to this, you don't know why you do what you do. According to this, you don't even know why your mo- what your motives are. You have no comprehension, no real understanding as to why you do what you do. Go to First John chapter 2. So yes, it does grieve me. Yes, it does annoy me. And I think I know why people preach this particular message. Because they don't want to be honest with their congregations. If you've got a preacher standing up every Sunday morning... And he says, oh, what a terrible week I've had. You know, I did this and I did that. I had this thought, I had that thought. His church would empty. He has to offer himself as being something special. He can't level with this congregation. He has to suggest that he is so holy, that he's so sanctified, that he's so wonderful. And he offers himself as this great icon. And yet the truth of the matter is he's no better than you. He's no different to you. His sins may not be your sins, your sins may not be his sins, but I guarantee you one thing, you're both in the same boat. 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 1 if you will. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. My little children, saved people, these things, First John, write I unto you, not to unsaved people, but to save uh, saved people, that ye sin not. But hold on a minute, you can't sin, because now you are a saint. Why is he telling people not to sin if you can't sin? And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a lawyer, we have a barrister, we have a mediator. And he is the propitiation for our sins. He's covered our sins. He's atoned for our sins. And not for us only, the church, but also for the sins of the whole world. Out goes limited atonement. He died for everyone and everything. You say, does that mean we all go to heaven? No, you have to believe on him. You have to receive him yourself. He won't do that for you. And yet for some people, this doesn't seem to register. Three, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments if you love me keep my commandments in the context from the gospel of john the law in the context the jews under the law stay on the right side of the lord here in the context the law of christ which he goes on to explain later on is to believe 
on the Lord Jesus Christ and to love your neighbour as yourself. If you are a born-again believer, you are obviously in the beloved, and as a result, you are able and equipped to love the brethren. And yet these verses, one more time, are missed on so many people. I don't know why, and yet I think I do know why, going back to what I just said a few moments ago. If you are a pastor, if you are an evangelist, if you are a street preacher, if you are one of these megastars on YouTube, you can't afford to go online and say, Hey everybody, this week I did this, this week I did that. They wouldn't even think about doing that. Sure, you're told to confess your faults to each other from James, but not your sins to each other. Your sins are confessed to the Lord, your faults to one another. If I wrong you, if I wrong you, or if he wrongs me, that's different. We say, I'm sorry, brother, I missed, you know, I was wrong here, or I was wrong there, sister, what have you, and we fix it up among ourselves. But if we sin, we take it upstairs. That was never really understood by the Catholic Church, and even parts of the Reformation got very confused about the difference between confessing sins to the Lord and confessing faults to one another. So, that concludes for now our New Testament look at why do I still sin? Please go to Psalm 25. So, like I said from the beginning of this so far three-part message, I sat down in September, at the beginning of September, to look at the uh, Proverbs and also the Psalms. And of course, some uh, New Testament epistles, just to renew my mind. I've got four or five subjects in mind. I'm not sure we'll have time to look at all of those subjects over the next few days. We're already uh, into day three so far, and therefore study three. But if I don't get a chance to look at all of the themes, maybe during our next meetup, uh, I can... Uh, Look at the other sermons. But as of right now, I'm up to Psalm 109. So I am behind schedule, and yet I've got enough material to attempt to profile King David. King David is beloved by the Jews. When you speak to Jews about uh, the kings of Israel, many of them think that David was their first king, but he wasn't. He was their second king. And I'm not sure why they get that wrong, but that's not really the issue. The fact of the matter is they love David, they love Moses, they love Abraham. We know that Abraham was a complex man. And I've spoken about Abraham with the wives and concubines. Uh, Moses was also a good man, a godly man, but also complex. Most of the Old Testament people have that problem feeding back into Romans chapter 7 again. You know, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I want to do, I can't do. It is almost impossible to live the Christian life. And yet, if you are saved... You want to push forward. You want to live for the Lord. Going back to what I just said. You love the Lord and yet you loathe lasciviousness. You find yourself doing what you don't want to do. And what you want to do, you rarely achieve. Psalm 25. Look at verse 7 if you will. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. There are so many verses like this. One more time. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses. Verse 6. For they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Dear Lord, please overlook the sins of my youth. Keep me 
close to you, remember my good times with you. And he got a man called King David, anointed by uh, Samuel, chosen by the Lord to be the king's anointed. And we believe that the Psalms were written around 1000 BC. Some of these verses are pre-Bathsheba. Some of these verses are post-Bathsheba. Remember, not the sins of my youth, the old man, the old conscience. This could be three o'clock in the morning. Nor my transgressions, not just transgressions singular, but transgressions plural. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. You've got a picture here of a man saved through imputation. His sins are being covered, but not forgiven, because Christ hasn't yet died for the sins of the world. In the Old Testament, anybody who died that was righteous couldn't go straight to heaven because the Lord of heaven hadn't come down to the earth yet. So where do they go? Abraham's bosom. Luke chapter 16. Maybe I'll discuss that later on. But here David is a holy man, and yet David is a carnal man. David fits into the Romans 7 scenario. And here he knows that he has sins from his youth, and he wants the Lord to overlook his sins. And I've spoken over the years about people like uh, David Brainard, a young uh, American uh, Calvinist who was sent to the Native Americans in the 17th century, had a very difficult ministry. I'm not sure in hindsight he should have gone. He was tortured. He was tormented. He struggled terribly. He almost uh, froze to death in the winter, almost baked to death in the summer. He went months on end without any conversations. His ministry was a failure. If you were to observe it, there was almost no fruit. Almost nobody got saved under his watch. And there were times when he was starving. There were times when he was so weak, he couldn't get out of bed. And he'd be praying to the Lord, and he'd be having some awful, I mean, just torturous thoughts. And I read his uh, diary. And at times you think to yourself, he's doubting God's existence. At times he's doubting his salvation. At times he thinks he's a child of the devil. At times he thinks he's saved, washed in the blood. He doesn't know if he's coming or going. He's tossed to and fro. When I first read that, I thought, what a tortured guy. And I said to myself this, that if I wasn't a saved person, I would diagnose him, in my lay opinion, as having a split personality. But of course, I know better. I know Paul's struggle, Romans chapter 7. I see David's initial struggle from Psalm 25, 7. But look, if you will, at verse 11. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. But it's already pardoned, David. What's going on here? His conscience is churning up. He feels conflicted. He feels worn down. He's under the cosh, as we say. He doesn't know if he's coming or going. 16. Turn thee unto me and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. People say, what's going on here? How could a king of Israel, the most powerful man in Israel, the wisest uh, from his generation, be feeling, you know, be uh, afflicted in such a way while he's being tormented? The devil's working him over. On top of that, his old nature's getting a hold of him. No, he wasn't born again. Nobody ever said that he was, but he was saved like we are saved through imputation, through faith alone. And yet he is desolate and afflicted. 17, for the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Oh, bring thou me out of my distresses. This poor man. It wasn't an easy road for him. It wasn't an easy route for him. 
just because he was the king of Israel, just because he was anointed, just because he would write most of the Old Testament didn't mean he was immune from doubts, attacks from the devil, even perhaps concerning his relationship with the Lord. 18, look upon mine affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. But David, your sins are forgiven. They're covered. Okay, strictly speaking, you can't go straight to heaven. We've already discussed that. But you're saved. But I don't feel saved. I feel tortured. I feel tormented. You've got a bad conscience, my friend. The devil's working you over. If you're not saved, you couldn't care less about how you think or what you do. I've met so many unsaved people over the years. Probably too many unsaved people. They don't care about their sins. They rejoice in their sins. Look at Hugh Hefner. Died a few days ago. No signs. No evidence whatsoever of any kind of repentance. We were told by our brother from Spain that the stones were in uh, Spain last week. And one of the statements that was accredited to Jagger was that he is the king of hell. He has no fear of death. He couldn't care less about his sins. But here I read about a man who was very interested in his sins. Could be pre-Bathsheba, could be post-Bathsheba. And I'll discuss that as we continue to work through the Psalms. Go to Psalm 31, please. Psalm 31. Look at 9, if you will. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Mine eye is consumed with grief, yea, my soul and my belly. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity and my bones are consumed. Once again, he knows he's no good. He wouldn't spend five minutes trying to convince himself that he was no longer a sinner, that he conquered the old man, that he was on par with Christ. Let's be quite honest. If you come across somebody who says they've conquered the old man, they are completely sanctified, no longer sin, what they are, what they are saying in essence is this, they are on par with Christ. They're in the same category as Christ, which goes back to an analogy I remember hearing years ago of what trainee lifeguards are taught and they're taught this that when somebody is drowning the lifeguard is dispatched to save the drownee and once the lifeguard goes into the water he has to explain to the person who's drowning to stop trying to save themselves and allow the lifeguard to save the person otherwise you've got two people who are going to drown and if the person who is drowning doesn't work with a lifeguard or submit that's a better word to the lifeguard's superiority no one's going to be saved from drowning. And that's the same sort of picture of salvation. Either we allow Christ to save us or we don't. We don't come alongside him and somehow help him out. And yet, unfortunately, this is what a lot of people think when it comes to their salvation. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Verse 9. For I am in trouble right now. Mine eye is consumed with grief. Yea, my soul and my belly. Yes, of course, this could be a number of issues that David was up against. It wasn't just Bathsheba. He had problems with Absalom. Absalom wanted to overthrow him. He had problems with his other children, the wives, the concubines. He was leading a divided nation and also growing nation. But ultimately, this is a throwback to David's inner man. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. This is an ongoing problem for David. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity and my bones are consumed. I would suggest this is David wrestling with his Adamic nature. He's not born again. Poor guy. We are all born again. We have something which he didn't have. We're still saved the same way through our faith in the one true God. Of course, how the 
uh, grace of God was dispensed would differ slightly in the Old and New Testament, but it's still going to be faith. It's a gift. Let's never deceive ourselves. But David, as a saved man, David, as a king of Israel, is battling the old man, and he doesn't always know what to do. Look at verse 23, if you will. O love the Lord, all ye his saints, for the Lord preserveth the faithful, and plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. That's David. That's my man. O love the Lord, or ye his saints, for the Lord preserveth the faithful, everlasting life, eternal security, and plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. Keep your hand there and go, if you will, please, to John chapter 10. Eternal security occasionally is found in the Old Testament. Not always, but occasionally. And in John uh, chapter 10, one of the strongest verses concerning eternal security, or as we call it, once saved, always saved, is found in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Look at uh, 28, if you will. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. That's good news. Because if you couldn't stay saved, if he couldn't keep you saved, you'd be sunk. Going back to, he leads me into all areas of righteousness. He has my hand, I don't have his hand. He's holding my hand, I'm not holding his hand. What would Simon say to Jesus? Lord, save me, I'm about to drown, about to perish. And the Lord grabs him and he keeps a hold of him. Go back to Psalm 31, 23 and I'll move on. Oh, love the Lord, absolutely a new man. All ye his saints, for the Lord preserveth a faithful. Save from the beloved, John chapter 10. And plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. 24, and I'll close. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. So you can see, can't you? You can see David loving the Lord, being reassured that all is good. I never leave you nor forsake you. And yet a wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? I hate what I do and what I want to do I cannot do I'm tortured I'm tormented I'm buffeted back and forth I may I may as well just kill myself no he doesn't say that he knows that one day he'll be delivered from his old man his old nature and if you can get that clear in your mind if you can relate to David if you can relate to the apostle Paul the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak if we say we haven't sinned we make him a liar if you get that clear in your mind You'll never be buffeted, tossed to and fro with the Lordship Salvation Camp or the once saved, you can be lost camp. And you have the perfect peace, which passes all understanding. And like I say, if David would struggle, and he did, so will you. If Paul would struggle, so will you. Let us never deceive ourselves. And we'll close there and continue this look at King David, Lord willing, tomorrow. Okay, so this is day number four. This is Bible study number four, looking at King David, specifically trying to profile one of Israel's greatest kings. And I was thinking last night at three o'clock in the morning, I didn't sleep particularly well, that every king in the Old Testament, and I mean every king in the Old Testament, 
had a problem with the flesh. Go to New Testament. If the Apostle Paul had a problem with the flesh, Romans chapter 7, it's fair to say that we've all got problems with the, uh, with the, with the flesh. Different types of problems, of course, but problems nevertheless. But the good news is when the Lord looks at us, he sees his son. Go to Galatians chapter 2, please. Galatians chapter 2 makes a wonderful statement, which many times is overlooked and doesn't really need to be overlooked. In fact, I would say this, that most Catholics couldn't exegete Galatians chapter 2. Most Protestants couldn't exegete Galatians chapter 2. Most Charismatics and Evangelicals couldn't exegete Galatians chapter 2. And as a result, they keep their people under the Old Testament system. In fact, I was thinking also this last night, that I think a lot of people, a lot of religious people, like to keep folks under the Old Testament. And what they like to do is they like to uh, get a reaction, and they like to put the Old Testament on Christians. And And because most Christians are weak, because most Christians are carnal, because most Christians are not particularly well scored in the Bible, they get upset very quickly. And I've seen Christians online attack street preachers physically, verbally. I've seen videos posted against street preachers just lambasting uh, street preachers for their uh, views, their presentations, their demeanor. And of course, two wrongs don't make a right. It doesn't help if these street preachers are preaching another gospel. It doesn't help if saved people are attacking street preachers And the world look at this and say, that's religion, you can keep it. Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, look at verse 20, please. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a wonderful verse. And like I said from the beginning of this so far four-part study, that if you can get Galatians down, or Romans, or Ephesians, or all three, you are greatly blessed. You have a clear picture of salvation. You see your standing is perfected in Christ. When he said, it is finished, he meant what he said. It is finished. Into thy hands I commend my spirits. It's a done deal, like we like to say. And yet for many people, they don't really understand this, or they don't want to understand this. 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. In other words, if you could keep the law, Christ died in vain. But it's important just to remind ourselves that 21, 22 picture, the saved man, the saved woman, complete in Christ. Number one, you are baptized in Christ. Number two, you are buried with Christ. Number three, you are resurrected with Christ. It can't get any better than that. It can't be perfected. It can't be improved. I mean, you are baptized into Christ. You are buried with Christ. You are resurrected with Christ. You are seated right now up in heaven and you are with the Lord in a spiritual sense. You can't improve that. No church put you into Christ. No church gave you everlasting life. No church put you into heaven. Most churches have no idea about what I'm speaking about this morning. I am present tense crucified with Christ. Spiritually of course not physically. Nevertheless I live yet not I. But Christ liveth in me, the seed of Christ. Going back to 1 John chapter 3, those that are born again cannot sin. Why? Because Christ lives within such people. Unlike the Old Testament saints, I'll come back to that in a moment. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So a typical saved man, typical saved woman, is still flesh and blood. 
middle-aged, young, old, male, female, Caucasian, Oriental, it makes no difference. If they're born again, Christ lives within them. So when they do well, Christ is glorified. When they don't do well, he is dishonored. He is wronged. Hence why you are told to confess your sins to him. But these verses don't suggest that you can no longer sin. It simply suggests that, number one, you are spiritually safe, sanctified, exonerated in Christ, up in the third heaven. And yet at the same time, you still have to help yourself. You have to deny yourself, like pick up your cross each and every day. Deny yourself. 21 and I move on. I do not frustrate the grace of God. This will feed into chapter 3, trying to do religion, trying to keep the law. And most churches are trying to do religion. Most churches are trying to keep the law. Most street preachers are trying to make themselves more righteous with the Lord. A lot of these street preachers are very self-righteous. And yes, it may be that they come out of the nightclub scene and are no longer nightclubbing. Wonderful. It may be that some of these people have come out of gambling or smoking or drug dealing or prostitution. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. But you can be sure of one thing. They've got other sins. It could be pride. It could be anger. It could be hatred. It could be a number of subjects, a number of things. And that's not what you see. It seems to me that most Christians like to pick on two or three sins and preach on those two or three sins and never get beyond those two or three sins. But again, going back to James 2.10, if you break one part of the law, you break all of the law. It's like a... Sh- uh, It's like a pane of glass, a sheet of glass. If I was to tap that glass, it would shatter. It's not yet broken, but it's shattered. It could be a violation of the Sabbath. It could be dishonoring your parents. It could be bearing false witness. It could be 101 things. It could be idolizing your children. It could be absolutely anything. And I tap that glass, it's shattered, but not yet broken. And the next thing I do is I whack it in the middle and it smashes and it falls onto the ground. The law has been broken. It's been broken in the spirit And it's being broken by the letter. Go to John chapter 7, please. So, one more time. Anybody who gets saved today, and you get saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you get saved by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty simple, isn't it? You just receive him. You just believe on him. And yet that too gets lost on so many people. They say, but did you repent of all of your sins? Are you living holy? You're not living holy? Are you sure you're really saved? And I've seen people like Ray Comfort put this question to people. And he says to folks, are you living holy? Are you walking with the Lord? It says that holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And you feel like saying, but are you living holy, Ray? You're very ecumenical, Ray. You go on TBN quite a lot. You make a lot of money through your DVDs. In fact, last time I checked, your DVDs are copyrighted. Can't be copied. They're chipped. And you move in pretty high, well-to-do circles. Do you live downtown? Do you live in Skid Row? Do you live with ordinary people? Are you living with the working class people of Orange County, California. And of course, you know that he's not. But to be fair, those people that he's speaking to are mainly unsaved. They could be saved, of course, but not necessarily aware of these things. And he would say, well, you have to repent of all of your sins in order to be saved. That's pretty difficult and not impossible. And you feel like saying to such people, but I'm not sure, Ray, if I've turned from every sin. What happens if I forget this sin or that sin? Or you say, are you living holy? Well, how do you define holy? I mean, how does anybody really define holiness? Like I say, you may have conquered the, 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 uh, the nightclub scene. You may have put away the prostitution. You may have put away the drink and the drugs and what have you. But what about other areas in your life? How about that grudge you're still holding? 
How about that bitterness that you can't deal with or won't deal with? How about your attack of the Bible? Now, on the Bible, you said the King James got errors, flaws. Very Comfort doesn't believe in the King James Bible. He uses new Bibles. He uses Catholic Bibles. What does it say in Revelation 22? That if you add to the Word of God, if you subtract from the Word of God, your name is removed from the Book of Life. Some people need to get their own houses in order before they go around trying to talk folks out of their salvation. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Look at 37, please. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Come unto me and drink. If you thirst, spiritually speaking, of course, come unto me and I will deal with your thirst. I will deal with your need. Again, salvation is found in a person, not a place. That too is lost on a lot of people. Many people think that they have the truth. And if you want to receive the truth, you have to go through a system. But time after time after time, it speaks about salvation being found in a person. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus was a Jew, speaking to the Jews under the law. Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man or woman thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Not physical water, spiritual water. You need to eat my flesh, drink my blood. I am the door. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Spiritual language, figurative language. Look at 39. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So, as I understand it, when Jesus arrives, he would preach for three and a half years. And first of all, he calls his disciples and they become his apostles. Many would believe on him and they seem to get saved like the Old Testament saints would be saved through imputation. It says Abraham believed on the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So it's imputation. It's faith in the one true God. The same is true of us today. We all got saved by believing on the one true God, receiving the only begotten Son of God, but what we receive is the new birth. We are regenerated. We are made alive. The Father, Son, and Spirit come to live within us. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe in him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so we know that as of this point in the Lord's ministry, the Spirit hadn't yet been given because Christ hadn't yet died on the cross. We understand that. We know that anybody who was righteous, declared righteous back in the Old Testament, was declared righteous by their faith in the one true God. We know that they couldn't go to heaven when they died, like heaven per se, like third heaven, like far north, because Almighty God in the person of Jesus Christ hadn't yet come to the earth to die for their sins. So they go into the ground, Abraham's bosom, and they remain there. It speaks about Christ going into the ground. It speaks about Christ setting captivity captive. It speaks about the thief being uh, with the Lord in paradise that day. Paradise was in the ground. Paradise is now third heaven. It also shows that Christ can be in two places at the same time, which is no problem for us because he is almighty God. Go to Psalm 32, please. So I am going to estimate that we've got probably one more study looking at King David, a wonderful Old Testament uh, man of God. 
a godly man of God, a man, allow me to say, with two natures, and yet technically not an Old Testament definition because nobody in the Old Testament was born again, but they were saved through imputation. But nevertheless, for the purpose, for the benefits of this study, entitled one more time, Why Do I Still Sin?, I will refer occasionally to the two natures in the believer. And when I do so, you know what I am referring to. Psalm 32, Psalm 32, look at verse 5, please. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. So you sin against the Lord, simply you confess that to the Lord. You wrong someone, you confess that wrong to such a person. That's something which the Catholic Church have never got right. They've never really understood that. They go to the Epistle of James, which speaks about confessing your faults. They uh, mistranslate that to sins, and they say that the elders in James means priests. And you see how they do that, don't you? And a Catholic, if he ever reads his Catholic Bible, goes to James and sees elders being translated priests, he sees faults translated sins, and he says, there you are, you see, it's in the scripture, and it's not. It's a mistranslation. They change the word repent to penance. They're pretty sneaky. They're pretty conniving. They're pretty clever. If you think of uh, John the Baptist, he speaks about him baptizing many people, and it says they came to him, and they confessed their sins. Not to John the Baptist, like some Catholic apologists would have you believe, but to Almighty God, as they're about to be baptized. Nothing wrong with that. When I was baptized in Israel many years ago, and Patrick was baptized, I was praying to the Lord in preparation of being baptized. I'm sure Patrick was. I'm sure we all were in different parts of the world. We weren't confessing our sins to each other. We don't fall into that trap. Most priests are wicked. In fact, let me say this. A typical Catholic will go into the confession booth perhaps once a year, perhaps once every year. Most don't bother anymore. But those that are really super duper will go in at least once a year or maybe twice a year. And they will confess their deepest, heinous thoughts, sins, actions to the priest in the box, okay? But the priest doesn't confess his sins to the church. So the priest has all the dirt on the congregation. He knows all about them, who they are, what they do. And some of those priests have used that information to blackmail members of their church. I mean, just think about it. You've got a typical man in a box, a so-called priest with a collar. He's been in that church for, say, 25 years. He knows everybody in the church. And let's say you arrive, or I arrive, or you arrive, or you arrive, or you arrive, and we start to speak about our sins to the priest in the box. He says, oh, here's such and such. Here's such and such. And she's doing this again, or he's doing this again, or he hasn't, con- he hasn't conquered that, or she's now doing this. And in his mind, he's keeping a record of it all. You might say, James, you're too cynical. I don't think so. But the point is this. It says in James to confess your faults to one another. So in my mind, isn't that a two-way thing? But not in the Catholic Church. A typical parish priest won't confess his sins to anyone. He may confess it to another priest, but he won't confess it to you, or you, or you, or you, or me. So it's a one-way system. On top of that, James speaks about healing. As far as I know, no Catholic priest can heal anyone. It says if you sinned and you confessed your sins to the elders, not priests, your sins are forgiven you. It speaks about being weak. It speaks about being sick. The last time I checked, no priest could help anyone else. In fact, Patrick and I were discussing a few days ago when the parents of Madeleine McCann went to the Vatican back in 2007, I think it was, or thereabouts, when their beautiful daughter disappeared and to this day has never been found. And this uh, well-to-do 
Glaswegian couple, I think, Catholic couple, went to the Vatican, met uh, Ratzinger, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, and they said to him, uh, "This is a picture of our daughter." And he said, uh, "Hold on, the Spirit is speaking to me. I can tell you that Madeline is at such and such a location." No, he didn't say that. He couldn't do anything for them. He did a simple hand gesture. And they stood there looking at him as if to say, is that all you can do? And I seem to have he put his hands on Kate McCain. Jerry looked somewhat bemused by the whole thing. And I thought, you see, this is what people don't think. People like myself see this and have to restrain, have to refrain from laughing. But this couple went to the Vatican to speak to Christ's representative on the earth, the so-called Holy Father, who, when he wore the triple tiara back in the day, could release souls from purgatory, who says that when I speak on the throne of Peter, I am infallible. That's quite a statement to make. When I speak on morals and faith, I'm the real deal. And this couple said, Holy Father, our beautiful daughter has disappeared from Portugal. We know that you can tell us where she is. We know that you have a hotline to heaven. Please help us out. No, he didn't do anything. He didn't even close his eyes. He just looked at them, did a silly hand gesture, and looked at the picture, did some gesture, sign of the cross over the picture. Yeah, they probably gave him an offering too. And they turned around and went back to the hotel and probably flew back to the UK. What did it achieve? What came out of it? Nothing. Psalm 32, uh, verse 5 again. I acknowledge my sin unto thee. It doesn't say what sin. Could have been the Bathsheba incident. Could have been any incident. And mine iniquity have I not hid. That's the way to go. I said I will confess my transgressions, plural, unto the Lord, not unto a priest or a pastor or an evangelist. And thou forgavest. The iniquity of my sin, sealer, past tense. David, I would say, would uh, be a great believer in First John, confessing your sins on a daily basis to stay in fellowship with the Lord. He wouldn't have spent five minutes overlooking, making excuses for his sins. And yes, we all have an old nature. Our DNA, like I said, from day one is no good. Our blood is no good. Our bodies, our brains are no good. And yet we have to take responsibility for our actions. Paul said he could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. That's quite a statement. All things? Is it over in Romans 8.28 how God works all things out together for good to those that love him, to those which are the called according to his purpose. Go to Psalm 34, please. Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Uh, look at verse 6, if you will, please. This poor man cried... And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That's a great verse for salvation, if you need it. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Now, in the context, it's to do with relationship. In the context, it's to do with perhaps financial problems, perhaps family problems, perhaps spiritual problems. But we can take such a verse and aim it at an unsaved person. This poor man, this poor woman, this poor person cried, and the Lord heard him. Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and saved him or her out of all his troubles. Wonderful verse. And it's like I've said before that it's never too late to get saved. It's never too late to come back into fellowship with the Lord. I remember reading an account of an Indian man who got saved. And got caught up in the whole textual criticism issue. His faith was shattered. He was taught at seminary that there's no perfect Bible. 
that we can't be sure if God's word is preserved, that the King James is loaded with errors, that Vaticanus and Sinaiticus are the superior manuscripts, and yet even those have problems, which I would certainly agree with. And this poor man, after some time at seminary, had his faith shaken, shattered, and he left the seminary disillusioned, drifted for 10, 15 years, and one day he was walking down the street, it could be New Delhi, Bombay, Calcutta, who knows, and he heard some commotion coming from an upstairs building, and he could hear a prayer group, some Christians rejoicing, and he stopped, and for the first time in 15 years, that old feeling came back, the joy that he'd once experienced when he first believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he went into this room, somewhere in India and realized that they had something which he had lost joy peace satisfaction purpose and he started to speak to such people and to his surprise they were using the King James Bible and that was the return of this man's walk with the Lord so we can use 34 6 we can apply that to anyone anywhere at any time we can say that it will save a soul we can say that it will bring a soul back into fellowship with the Lord. Look at verse 8, please, from Psalm 34. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is a man that trusteth in him. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is a man that trusteth in him. 9. O fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. He's holy. Yes, he's also love. But at the same time, you should fear the Lord. Ye, his saints, all of you that are his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. Going back to John chapter 7, drink from me, you never thirst again. Go back to the woman at the well. If you come to me, you'll never be in need. I'm all that you need. I am completely sufficient for you. If you come to me. 13. Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Again, save person needs to watch what they say, what they do. Going back to my earlier statement that just because you are a godly man or a godly woman, whether you're saved in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you still have to to watch what you say. You have to watch what you do. You have to watch how you operate. The Lord won't do everything for you. That old expression, the Lord helps those who help themselves, is very true. Keep thy tongue from evil. Shut your mouth and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Be ye holy, for I am holy. The eyes of the Lord, verse 15, are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Unsaved people. And you could also apply that to a saved person who becomes a perpetual backslider. And as a result, according to 1 Corinthians 6 and uh, Colossians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 5, could quite possibly lose their millennial inheritance. 17. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. So the righteous cry, you're not righteous in of yourself. Our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of the Lord. We've all sinned. And come short of the glory of God. In fact, just last night, we did some outreach. And a guy came over to me, saw the banner. And he was somewhat of a hippie. And he said to me, well, God is love. And I said, yes, but he's also holy. Like I just said a few moments ago. And he said to me, uh, 
you know, we're all God's children. I said, no, we're not. I said, uh, the Bible says we're all evil. And he, you know, he looked kind of shocked by that. And I said, uh, Christ would say that only God is good. And even after we're saved, we're still no good. And he said to me, there's so much, prop, there's, you know, there's so much disillusionment in the world. There's so many people struggling in the world. The world is in a blankety-blank state at the moment. And your banner is just adding more pain, more, I don't know, division to an already divided world. And I said, well, we can't do much about that. If I wasn't here with the banner, nobody else would be here with the banner. Nobody else would be in Bristol as far as I can see anyway, trying to get the balance right. The righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. Save people, but you can spiritualize that to somebody who perhaps has called on the Lord. Verse 6, 18. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Absolutely. Humble yourself. Get down on your knees. When Paul the Apostle was en route to Damascus, he saw a great light. Christ said he was the light of the world. The Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. He fell off his horse or his donkey, and that light blinded him. I mean, physically. Of course, he was blind spiritually before he was set free of that blindness. But for the first time, perhaps in his life, he was on his knees. And it speaks about him being in such a state, blind for three days. And he was praying, and he was fasting. And you can be pretty sure that he was pretty distraught for the first time in his life. His textbooks couldn't help him out. All of his education couldn't help him out. His family genealogy couldn't help him out. He said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was probably one of Israel's greatest scholars. And yet, for the first time in his life, he's blind. He's not able to eat. He loses some weight. And he has to wait for some other guy to come along called Ananias to pray over him, picturing, I guess, the need for some kind of fellowship. You know, if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Going back to the church like a hospital. The church is like a hospital. We came to the Lord because we have a sin problem. We came to the Lord because we need to be helped, need to be healed. He's the great physician. And sometimes people go back into hospital. Sometimes people are readmitted. Sometimes people spend a long time in hospital. Sometimes people are born with faulty genes. They're still saved. They love the Lord, but they are readmitted into hospital. Sometimes people spend years in hospital. What a miserable existence. The church is like a hospital. And yet, if your heart is right, if you humble yourself, receive the Lord like a child, you're saved and kept saved. 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I won't allow you to be tempted or tested or tried above what you can handle. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 20. He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Messianic, of course. King David, very much a type of Christ, would on multiple occasions speak about Christ in a way that we don't really understand. He would write what he wrote and he was shown things that we don't really understand. And I don't know if he really understood it either. It says from uh, Peter how godly men were moved by the Holy Ghost. They spake, they wrote what they were shown, seen, I'm slightly paraphrasing, but they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They weren't always aware of what they were seeing. It speaks about the prophets inquiring. It says that the angels are very interested in the things for the new covenants. So David, on many occasions, sees things, he writes about what he sees. He's speaking about himself, of course, but ultimately 
he's speaking about the Messiah. I mean, the last time I checked, David wasn't crucified. The last time I checked, none, none of the Old Testament greats were crucified. In fact, for my study of history, the first group of people to bring in crucifixion were the Assyrians. 700 BC, the Romans, of course, came along and perfected it. 21, evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. So a two-tier system, a two a two stream of people, or two category of people, two types of people. Evil shall slay the wicked, unsaved people, and yet saved people can practice evil. Saved people can be temporarily wicked, and they that hate the righteous, the redeemed, shall be desolate. Picturing hell, of course. 22, and I'll close for this morning. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. So you start off with a great promise from Galatians. You have a great promise from Galatians that you are crucified right now in Christ. You are buried with Christ right now. You are buried, baptized, and resurrected with Christ in Christ right now. You are ruling and reigning with Christ right now up in the third heaven. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And here we close for this morning. The Lord, the triune God, redeemeth the soul of his servants. He has redeemed our souls. He has redeemed us back to himself. We once belonged to him through the federal head of Adam. Sin came into the world. We fell. And the Lord has had to purchase us back to him. Because if he doesn't purchase us back to him, we don't belong to him. I guess it's like a property. You might say, this is our property. Where are the keys? Or where are the title deeds? No keys, no title deeds. This isn't your house. And you might say, well, we're going to stay here. And the owner phones the police. The police arrive and they say, you have no legal right to be here. Can you prove that you own this property? And you say, I can't prove it. Well, then out you go. The same is true of a car or anything. How about a birth certificate? You bring a child into the world. Where's the birth certificate? Can you prove this is your child? And you say, well, I haven't got a birth certificate. Then you can't prove it. And if you can't prove it, perhaps it's not your child. But Christ dies on a cross. And as I understand it, he goes back to the third heaven, hands pierced, side pierced, feet pierced. We see that in eternity. And he says to God the Father, this is what I did. This is what I had to do. They belong to me. Going back to First uh, John chapter 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, the body of Christ, and also for the sins of the world. We belong to him and he belongs to us. We are safe in him. We are complete in him. He holds our hand. We don't hold his hand. It's his responsibility to get us saved. It's his responsibility to keep us saved. It's like I've said before. You board an airplane. You put your complete faith in a pilot. You know perfectly well that if that plane started to descend, you couldn't do anything. We're not trained pilots. And even if we get into the cockpit, which would be pretty impossible. They're now bulletproof, bombproof. But even if you could, you couldn't stop it. You couldn't get the controls. And I would suggest, even if somebody was talking you through it, you would still struggle. You couldn't control a Boeing 747 or those, those, those uh, huge oil tankers. Or imagine being asked to control an aircraft carrier. You couldn't do it. It's out of your control. It's out of your remit. But here, the Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants. Context, Old Testament. But for today, it's still the same. We are his servants. We become his friends. And then we go back to being his servants. Book of Revelation feeding into the millennium, kingdom of priests. Some of us are going to be ruling, reigning. Some Jews will be on the new earth with the Messiah. Some Jews will be resurrected 
Some Jews will be in the third temple with the Lord. Some Christians from the church age will have more crowns than others. Some servants for the church age will be judging angels. Some servants for the church age will be in mansions. Some servants for the church age will have a lot of responsibility, a lot of privileges. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, all of us this morning, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Once saved, always saved. Going back to John 10, 28, 30, my father and I are one. You're safe in the hands of the Lord. The father's got you in his hand. The son has got you in his hand. It says over in the book of Hebrews that the eternal spirit went up into the Holy of Holies and through the blood of Christ purchased our salvation. This is supernatural from beginning to end. It's like creation. God didn't need anybody's help to create the world. God doesn't need anybody's help to sustain the world. God doesn't need anybody's help to get people saved. And God certainly doesn't need anybody's help to keep people saved. No church can help you. No church can get you saved. No church can keep you saved. You're saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are kept saved by what he did for you, not what you did for him. And one more time, although you are saved, although you are crucified in the present tense with Christ, you still have the old sin problem. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Not what, but who? Not Holy Mother Church, not this evangelical seminary, not this fundamental seminary, but who will deliver me from the body of this death? And that person, of course, is our blessed Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that note, all glory to him indeed. Amen. So this will be day number five, Bible study number five, and we are looking at why do I still sin? Why do the saints of the Lord sin? I want to try and blitz as many verses today as I can from the Psalms. And let's begin, if we may, from Psalm 36. Psalm 36, look at verse 6, if you will. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. Once saved, always saved. And here, King David, once again, speaks about his relationship with the Lord and we know from uh, most uh, experts that have looked at these psalms over the years that they were written around a thousand BC and therefore what you're reading is not only from the pen of David but it's from the pen of a saved man. David didn't write the psalms before he was saved. He didn't write the psalms uh, after he somehow lost his salvation as some have suggested. He wrote the psalms during his salvation Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep, O Lord. Thou preservest man and beast. So in the context, it's David, a Jew, speaking about Jehovah's covenantal or covenant relationship with the Jews. We can take such a verse, and we will for this morning, and apply it to anybody today. You are preserved in Christ. You are safe in Christ. You are complete in Christ. Seven. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. For with thee is a fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. O continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee, and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. 
Let not the foot of pride come against me, and let not the hand of the wicked remove me. There are the workers of iniquity fallen. They are cast down and shall not be able to rise. So David wants to remain in fellowship with the Lord, close fellowship with the Lord. The apostles wanted to be in close fellowship with the Lord. There's an account back in the Gospels when uh, Peter saw the Lord Jesus Christ walking on the water. And he said to the Lord, I want to come to you. And the Lord said, come on. And he got out of the boat and he walked on the water. This is Peter. And Peter starts to panic. And he says to Jesus, Lord, save me. And the Lord reaches out his hand, grabs uh, Peter's hand and keeps him safe. Now, in the context, that's to stop Peter from drowning. But again, we can take such a passage and apply it to somebody who is saved. Once saved, always saved. You are safe in the hands of the Lord. Chapter 37, chapter 37. Uh, Look at verse 23, if you will. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. An Old Testament passage affirming, uh, once saved, always saved. And yes, you will fall, but in the context, it means to permanently fall. It means to permanently depart from the Lord or to permanently backslide, or to permanently fall away from the Lord. And if you do fall, he will catch you. He will catch you. He will rescue you. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Going back to my earlier statements, how he has our hands. He has my hand. He has your hand. He has all of our hands. We don't have his hand. He has us, and we are safe in him. And these verses need to be read and reread again. Jump down to 27, please. Depart from evil and do good. And dwell forevermore. So David is a saved man. And people say, well, once you get saved, you can't sin. Well, if that's the case, why is he telling people to depart from evil? He's speaking to Jews under the law. But he's writing from the standpoint of a saved Jew. Okay, not born again. I've already made that case. But he was saved through imputation. He's called the Lord's uh, beloved, the apple of the Lord's eye. And he would go through many trials and tribulations. But he was far from perfect. He was loved in spite of himself, not because of himself. Depart from evil, the same would be true today, and do good. Go and sin no more, and dwell forevermore. 28, for the Lord loveth judgment, and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off, unsaved people. For the Lord loveth judgment. God is holy. It says over in Hebrews that he hates iniquity. It says in Habakkuk that he can't behold any kind of evil. The Lord loves judgment. And forsakes not his saints. They are preserved forever. Again an Old Testament passage. Affirming eternal security for the church age. But the seed of the wicked. Unsaved. Never saved to begin with. Shall be cut off. Meaning they will be destroyed. And eventually go into everlasting fire. 29. The righteous shall inherit the land. And dwell therein forever. In the context the promised land. For today, you could spiritualize that and say for the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. 34, the Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. So again, it's get saved. It's uh, mark out a good man, 23. If you fall, 24, he will preserve you. He will catch you. It's like a parent who sees their child about to fall off a swing. The parent runs to the child. The child doesn't run to the parent. 
when a child is first born, the child has no say over anything. The child is completely dependent on its mother, its parents, to take care of its welfare. And the same is true of a Christian. A Christian is completely dependent on the Saviour to get you saved and to keep you saved. Look at uh, 37, if you will. Mark the perfect man and behold the upright. For the end of that man is peace. Paul would say to follow me as I follow Christ. Go to Psalm 38, please. Psalm 38. Look at verse 1, if you will. O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. For thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For mine iniquities have gone over mine head. As an heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before thee. And my groaning is not hid from thee. My heart panteth, my strength faileth me. As for the light of mine eyes, it also is gone from me. My lovers and my friends stand aloof from my sore, and my kinsmen stand afar off. They also that seek after my life lay snares for me, and they that seek my hurt speak mischievous things, and imagine deceits all the day long. There's no doubt there that David knew that he was a man battling his sin problem. He's hardly arrogant. He's hardly of the opinion that now he's king of Israel, he will no longer stumble, he will no longer fall. He says in verse 1, Rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Thine arrows stick fast in me, thy hand presseth me sore. Verse 4, Mine iniquities are gone over mine head, as an heavy burden they are too heavy for me. 6, I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. Sounds like a saved man to me. Eight, I am feeble and so broken, sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. He's grieving over sin. Ten, my heart panteth, my strength faileth me. As for the light of mine eyes, it also is gone from me. Lord, help me out. I'm struggling here, I'm buckling here. I love the Lord and yet I loathe lasciviousness. These verses are wonderful to read and read and read again. You won't find sinner's perfection anywhere in the Old Testament. Look at verse 18, if you will. For I will declare mine iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. But what sin, David? You're now a perfect saint. Why are you declaring your iniquity? Why are you sorry for your sin? Little children, I write these things unto you that you sin not. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. First John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And here David is very much picking up that type of theme look at 21 forsake me not O lord O my god be not far from me make haste to help me O lord my salvation don't forsake me lord don't cast me off like you would with saul don't take my anointing from me revelation speaks about a candlestick being moved out of its place whatever you do lord please be merciful to me don't pass me over i know that i'm a sinful man a wretched man that i am Going back to Paul's lamentation of himself. Forsake me not, O Lord. 21. O my God, be not far from me. 
Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Time after time after time after time, King David, a man greatly beloved, a man anointed by Samuel when he was a young man in the presence of his brothers, in the presence of his father, Jesse, would rise to become Israel's greatest king. And yet for, I think he was on the throne for 40 years, had difficult times, difficult days, had a very dysfunctional family, his own fault, of course. I think I counted over 12 lovers that David was affiliated with. It wasn't just Bathsheba. There was a film made back in the 1950s called David and Bathsheba, and it ran for 90 minutes. Not a bad film, but there's far more to David than just Bathsheba. In fact, I thought a few nights ago, you got Solomon and Sheba, David and Bathsheba. Interesting coincidence. And we know what happened with Bathsheba and David, and some have suggested that Solomon was intimate with Sheba. We're not told that from Scripture, but some have implied that. But poor old David, very much up against it, and of course, it's his own fault. Psalm 39, Psalm 39, look at verse 1 if you will. I said, I will take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle, while the wicked is before me. I was done with silence, I held my peace, even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. My heart was hot within me, while I was musing, the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue, Lord, make me to know mine end, and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. No arrogance, none of this nonsense about since I've been saved, I no, I no, I no longer sin. Since I've been saved, I am now perfect. I am the greatest man in my neighborhood. In fact, I got an email from some character about two years ago on YouTube, a very self-righteous character, and he was correcting me over my belief on salvation. I forget what it was. And I got back to this guy and I said to him, I would imagine that you are the most, you're the wisest man in your town. And I would imagine that people are queuing up to seek you out for wisdom And I would imagine every church in your neighborhood is just lining up to seek your counsel. Of course, I was being sarcastic, facetious, but my point was this. Such people offer themselves as this great authority like Job's friends. And yet, if you were to speak to just a handful of their neighbors, their friends, their associates, I would imagine, I would suggest that for the most part, such people would have nothing much to say about a self-righteous character. But you couldn't say that about David. Five, behold, thou hast made my days as an hand breath, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Selah. I love that verse. David knew what man was all about. It says over in the Gospel of John, the last verse or two from John, chapter 2, John chapter 2, how Jesus knew what was in man. Didn't need man to testify of him. That really says it all. Jesus knew what was in man and didn't need man to testify of him. And David, completely on the money, music to my ears. Verily, every man, every woman at his best state, saved or unsaved, makes no difference, is altogether vanity sealer. Mark my words. Verse 7. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. You couldn't call, you couldn't call uh, David self-righteous. You couldn't say that David was in denial. You couldn't say Paul 
was self-righteous. You, you, know, you couldn't say Paul was in denial. If Paul was honest with you, if David was honest with you, why aren't more pastors today honest with you? Why aren't more evangelists and elders and deacons honest with you, with all of us? You have to wonder why they play this problem down and why they elevate themselves up. Again, John the Baptist would say that Christ must increase and I must decrease. And yet most of these churches seem to want to increase more and more and more. Look at verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner, as all my fathers were. O spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Time after time after time after time, David is in need of reassurance. The Jews require a sign and they get it. And time after time, David is receiving progressive revelation. He is in very close proximity with the Lord. He walks very closely with the Lord. He sees the Lord. He hears from the Lord like Moses would see the Lord, would be shown things from the Lord, would suffer as a result of the sin in the camp. Many Jews were causing Moses problems. On one occasion, the Lord says to Moses, speak to the rock, speak to the rock, being a type of Christ. And uh, Moses uh, hits the rock three, four times, twice, doesn't speak to the rock. He smites the rock. He attacks the rock. Picture of contempt. And the Lord deals with uh, Moses. He dies prematurely. Aaron gets caught up with the idolatry and he gets uh, dealt with. He dies prematurely. Miriam uh, criticizes uh, Moses, his anointing, his wife. She gets leprosy and she too dies prematurely. Three Old Testament saints incredibly wicked in fact i think the worst of the sins would be idolatry that's the that's the main sin in scripture idolatry the false worship of the lord in a way that he absolutely detests but time after time you're seeing king david knowing that he's no good in desperate need of a blessing an anointing something gracious from god and time after time god comes through for him look at verse uh look at uh Psalm 40, Psalm 40, look at one, please. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it, and fear, and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is a man that maketh the Lord his trust, and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works, which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to us would. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. So if you are a typical man, a typical woman, a typical saved saint, and you are struggling, and uh, you don't know if you're saved, you don't know if you're coming or going, you don't understand why things go the way they go, or you have been caught up in holiness movements or Calvinist systems. Read these verses. Mark a man out. Mark the Lord's, the Lord's anointed. Mark him out. Read what he says. He's writing from the standpoint of a saved man. He wasn't unsaved. When he wrote these verses, he was saved. He was dealing with Israel's problems, and he was also dealing with his own problems. Look at verse 10, please. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. 
I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. I don't know of many Jews. I don't know of many Hasidic Jews. I don't know of many Orthodox Jews. I don't know of many liberal or secular Jews that share Jehovah with the world. It seems to me that we are the only type of people that do what we do. I've never seen a Hindu street preacher. I've never seen a Sikh street preacher. I've never heard of a Masonic outreach. I've never heard of a New Age get-together. I mean, they might sell the materials, but I mean, on a street corner. I mean, become a Hindu or you'll burn. Become a Sikh or you'll perish. Become a Freemason or you'll be destroyed. But Christians like ourselves, we go onto the streets and we take the time to warn people of judgment. And this is where the Jews failed. The Jews had a mandate. They were called to worship Jehovah. They were called out of paganism, the worship of many gods, and they were to witness to their Gentile neighbors. And they wouldn't do it. They didn't do it. Look at Jonah. Look at Nineveh. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. That's good. Most Jews couldn't say that. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. Salvation is of the Jews. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. In the context, David speaking to the children of Israel. For today, us speaking to the world. The church speaking to those that are not yet saved. With the hope that perhaps one day they will go on to get saved. Look at 11. Withhold not thou thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me, so that I'm not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore my heart faileth me. That sounds like me. That sounds like all of us. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Again, in the context, David is a leader over a huge people. He needs wisdom. Solomon would ask for wisdom, would get it. He wants wisdom. He needs help to govern his nation. He needs help to govern himself, to discipline himself, to keep the flesh down. And yet he knows time after time he is nothing without the Lord. He can do nothing without the Lord. And time after time, by the grace of God, almighty God comes through for him. Going back to my earlier statements, how the Lord would never leave you, would never leave him, and would never forsake him. He won't forsake us. Look at verse uh, 17, if you will. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O my God. So, if the king of Israel would say such a thing, if the king of Israel would see himself in such a light, why don't people today see themselves in such a light? I mean, lordship, salvation people. I mean, those that are in the holiness camp. Why don't they see themselves in such a light? I mean, street preachers. Many, many people that I could think of would read these verses and say, well, when David wrote these verses, he wasn't saved. Or when he wrote these verses, he was worried about losing his salvation. Or when he wrote these verses, he was fearful of losing his anointing. Very few people say that when he wrote these verses, he was just struggling. Just struggling like we all do. He's a typical man. He's plucked out of, of, out of uh, obscurity. He has been given a huge mandate. Never before have a people become a great nation. Never before 
have they become kings over their people. Never before would they write the Old Testament picturing the coming Messiah. Never before would a nation bring forth one man which would redeem the whole world. That's a pretty heavy burden. 41.4 I said, Lord, be merciful unto me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. 12. And as for me, thou upholdest me in mine integrity and settest me before thy face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting and to everlasting. Amen and amen. Two sides to David. I love the Lord. I love the law. I try to keep the law. I try to please the Lord. But in me, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. There is a will to do good, but how to perform it, I don't know. The spirit is willing, the new man, the regenerated sinner, but the flesh, the old man, is weak. A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Who will help me? Who will save me? Who will rescue me? I'm going to hold it there and attempt to complete this either tonight or tomorrow morning. So this will be part six to our multi-part look at King David. And I want to attempt to conclude our look at King David, a man with two natures. But before I do, just a quick update as to how the outreach is currently going. We had a, a great last three days. And it dawned on me as we were driving back from Cardiff last night that the last three days uh, particularly have been very successful. When we left to go to uh, Cardiff yesterday morning, we locked ourselves out. Then we realized there was a problem with the car. So we had to find a garage. We had to get the uh, problem dealt with. Then we made our way to Cardiff and it wasn't too difficult to get there. Weather started to deteriorate. We arrived in Cardiff, had a good time. The rain stopped. We had a good location, had some great conversations. I was able to uh, street preach a couple of times, and it's all being captured on video, praise the Lord. We estimate maybe 300 tracks were given out. But the problems began as we left the city around mid-afternoon. First of all, we couldn't get out of the car park. Problems with payment, and as usual, no staff to consult. What should have taken no more than 55 minutes, an hour, took four hours. We drove from Cardiff to Newport to Monmouth to 10 miles away from a place that I haven't been to in over 25 years called uh, Abercaveni. And from Abercaveni, we had to turn the car around and try and get back on track. We had two GPSs going. Very stressful. We had planned to arrive back at our base in Bristol mid to late afternoon, do this recording that we're doing this morning, and then go and do some letterboxing. We hoped to uh, letterbox maybe 400 tracks. We didn't get home until quite late. We had our dinner quite late. We didn't have the reading. There was no time for that, but we managed to go letterboxing. It started to rain, so we had to come back to the home. But I realized this, that because of the success in Cardiff, the devil got back at us in different ways. The day before that, we were in Glastonbury, another very uh, difficult place to visit, but nevertheless, it was worth doing. And we did pretty well there. We preached, we gave out tracts, and again, that was filmed. 
But coming back, a couple of situations came our way which we didn't uh, envisage. And the day before that, we were in Bath. And again, a successful outreach. And leaving Bath, we, I think, got caught up in traffic, took a wrong turn here or there, and it added more time to our journey and resulted in a waste of petrol. But this is the truth of the matter when you do any kind of outreach work. You have to expect the devil will get back at you. And for us, he hit us pretty hard yesterday. We spent four hours doing what should have taken one hour. But we are all in good spirits. It's all going very well. I remain of the opinion that this is the most. This has been the most uh, ambitious and successful autumn outreach to date. And for my part, I'm very blessed to be here, enjoying some wonderful company with some wonderful saints. Psalm 44. Psalm 44. Uh, look at verse 8, if you will. In God we boast all the day long, and praise thy name forever, Selah. So, of course, that's the goal. The goal is to boast all the day long, to brag all the day long, to really hold up the name of Jesus. In God we boast all the day long, and praise thy name forever, Selah. We were saved to worship the Lord. Revelation speaks about us being created for the worship of the Lord, to glory the Lord. And if you're not worshipping him, if you're not glorying him, something's wrong. And we can do so in many different ways. And one of the ways that we've decided to do so is street work. Like this week in Bristol. And we've been to, I think, five or six towns so far. And so far, like I say, it's been very successful. But David is a man with two natures. David is a man after the Lord's heart. And he's also a man of the people. He's a complex man, but he's a saved man. And like I keep saying, if you are saved and you find yourself not able to do what you should do, wanting to achieve great things for the Lord, and you keep stumbling, keep on going. The worst thing you can do is just give up. I don't know how many people have just given up. I was on Instagram for maybe 18 months, and I got a PM from a brother in, uh, in London, and he said this to me. He said, uh, I feel very lonely. I feel very depressed. I feel sometimes, is it even worth doing this? Like serving the Lord. I feel like th- uh, throwing in the towel. And I got back to him saying, keep on going, brother. Don't become too, uh, too, uh, too defeatist. Don't uh, allow your failures or the perceived failures to get you down. I mean, I, I'll say this. I think if just 10 people or just five people yesterday got something out of our presence. That, for me, is a great success. I know one of us had a good conversation with a lady yesterday, and she said she was saved. In fact, two good conversations from two members of our group yesterday, and one lady was encouraged by our presence, and one gentleman was encouraged by our presence, and both offered themselves as Christians, and who's to say they weren't? They said they are. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And they were very happy for us to be there. They took tracks. And I think one of the people took a DVD. It's a great success, if just for those two people. In fact, during our time in Glastonbury, as I was street preaching, I saw this elderly gentleman at the bus stop, eyes locked on me. And I mean locked on me for maybe 20 minutes as I was preaching. I thought to myself this, if I can just preach to him, it's been worth it for me. I mean, his eyes never came off me. His eyes were fixed on me. And it's almost as if he was saying, I don't want to be associated with you, but I agree with it. You know, whatever you're saying, everything you've said, you know, is music to my ears. And for me, that was a great uh, level of encouragement. Psalm 51. Let's keep moving on. Psalm 51. 
Look at verse 1 if you will. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. So here David gets tangled up with Bathsheba. It was David's fault. He should have gone out to war. And it says kings go forth. And he should have gone forth with his men, but he decided to sit back. He decided to uh, go to his rooftop one night. He decided to get some fresh air. And of course, that's where it all went wrong for him. Five. Behold, I was shaven in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's so important that we get that verse down, if nothing else, from the last few studies. Because one more time, there are far too many people that are doing street work around the world and their videos are viewed in the thousands by all sorts of people who believe that nobody is born in original sin, that we are all born good, but we decide to do bad. This is what the Muslims also believe. And of course, that puts people into an awful spin. Well, if we're born good and we decide to do bad and I'm doing bad or I'm doing evil, I guess I'm not saved. And we go down that path again. You know, am I saved? I feel awful, I feel terrible. Or I've lost my salvation, I can't get it back. Or maybe I'm not one of the Lord's elect. But here David makes it very clear how he was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he makes a very biblical statement, a very honest fact that he was shapen in iniquity. His mother conceived him in sin. Going back to Adam's sin, he doesn't justify his actions. And this is always very important that we don't justify our actions if we uh, transgress the law the law and the Lord, and we certainly will do, we need to confess so. If we start to bypass it, in fact, we were discussing before we started recording uh, recording this morning's message how a good number of people don't believe that there's any need to confess sins to the Lord, ever. And I made, uh, well, I was discussing a situation that I encountered a couple of years ago where I had to block somebody who was uh, posting videos, attacking my doctrine, my understanding of having to confess our sins to the Lord, and I lost a friend, quote-unquote, due to my belief that it's imperative to confess our sins, to stay in fellowship with the Lord. Look at verse 9, please. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. David never once says, well, Lord, I'm now saved. It's all good. He's very conscious of his sins. He's very mindful of his sins. If you find someone who isn't uh, conscious, isn't sensitive concerning their sinful nature, something's not right. You should have a very sensitive um, understanding when it comes to right from wrong. But many times people bury their consciences and they overlook their consciences and they say, well, the Lord will judge me. And of course he will. And I don't have to give an account of myself to you. Well, yes and no. And therefore I'll do my own thing. That's a very common view today. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So David wasn't born again. None of the Old Testament greats were born again. And so in some ways they were at a disadvantage. They had an anointing from the Lord. They had a revelation from the Lord. They had a lot of responsibility from the Lord, but they weren't born again. They weren't regenerated. The triune God didn't live with inside them. So they were still very much in the flesh. Going back to the spirit is wedding, but the flesh is weak. But at the same time, there was no inner power to help them out. We have the mind of Christ. Again, Paul says he could do anything through Christ who strengthened him. The Old Testament greats couldn't say that. They would need to be re-anointed time after time. In fact, if you think of the um, Samuel 
incident. If I make it Samson, Samson gets tied up with Delilah and some other people. And towards the end of uh, uh, Samson's life, he reveals his strength to the lady in question. And she, of course, shaves his hair. And he says to himself, it's all good. I'll just get up like I did beforehand, break out of the uh, trap that the Philistines have set for me, and I'll be on my way. No, the spirit left him. And he was just like everyone else. Now, people use that analogy to demonstrate a loss of salvation. A lot of people use that analogy, and they say, there you are, you see. He was a saved man, lost to salvation. No, he lost his anointing. He had a lot of, lot of strength, a lot of power. I mean, he brought the whole, he brought the whole house down, literally. In fact, I remember in uh, one of the Superman movies, allow me to use this as a quick analogy, there's a scene in one of the Superman movies, it may be Superman 2, when he wants to uh, lose his powers, and he wants to lose his powers to marry the love of his life, and he loses his powers, and he's now just an ordinary man. And he goes into a diner, and he sees this drunk in this diner, gets into an altercation with him, and I think he's forgotten that he's no longer Superman, like Samson, always pinched parts of the Bible, these people. And he gets into an altercation with him. It's Christopher Reeve, of course, playing Superman. And this guy punches Christopher Reeve, knocks him flying, and he realizes he's just an ordinary man. And towards the end of the film, he has to go back to being Superman. And he gets his old superpowers back, and he goes back to the drunk in the diner, and he knocks him for six. It's a picture of losing an anointing. It's a picture of Samson. Samson starts off as a very powerful man, killed hundreds of people. I mean, some of the ways he killed people, just brutal, and never once repented either. But he's carnal. He would go off with different women. And like I say, he on one occasion thought that the spirit uh, was still with him, only to realize that the spirit was not with him. And of course, they shaved his hair. They took his eyes out. They said, he'll make sport for us. And he realizes that he hasn't got much time left. He calls the name of the Lord, never, never confesses his sins. He never says, Lord, I'm sorry for the women. I'm sorry for the killings. I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for that. He just calls in the name of the Lord. The Lord hears his prayer. He uh, allows him to retain, to have his uh, anointing returned, which is what David is now asking for. And he brings the whole house down, crashing. And some have suggested that that was a suicide. The jury's out on that. I've heard statements for and against it. Some people say that Samson committed suicide and is in heaven. Hebrews chapter 11. Others say he didn't commit suicide. Take your pick. Look at verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Two ways to exegete this. Most people say that David was fearful of losing his salvation. In fact, I've heard dispensationalists say this. I've heard Peter Ruttman say this. I've heard other people say this, but I've also heard people say that David is fearful of losing his anointing, which is where I would uh, be in agreement with such a statement. David saw what happened to Saul. He saw Saul start good and end bad. He saw Saul, the Lord's anointed. He wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. He wouldn't challenge the Lord's anointed. He had more than one occasion to kill the Lord's anointed. And he said to himself, I don't want to fall foul of the Lord like Saul did. In fact, a quick footnote, the LGBT community liked to make this awful uh, statement that David was a homosexual. He had many sins, David, but he wasn't a homosexual. Let's just be fair to the man. He had many sins, but he wasn't a homosexual. And they said that he was very close to Jonathan. But what they forget to mention is that Jonathan was his brother-in-law. 
he married Jonathan's uh, sister. They were family. Like, if you think of the relationship Jesus had with uh, Lazarus and his sisters. Completely platonic, nothing immoral about it. And they twist this, and poor old David gets a bit of a bad rap. You know, he was many things, but he wasn't a homo. He wasn't a sodomite. He was many things, but he wasn't in that category. And I'll tell you something. Had he been a homosexual, you would have read about it. You read about Lot and his daughters. You read about uh, Judah back in Genesis, going with the harlots. You read about um, Aaron with the idolatry. I mean, you read about everything in the Old Testament. You read about Miriam being a racist. I mean, you read about everything. And I would say one more time, if David had David been a homosexual, you'd have been told it. He wasn't a homosexual. That's one thing he can't be condemned for being. 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Joy, the fruit of the spirit, the spirits of the Lord, intercedes on our behalf. And here David wants his joy restored. Can you imagine living without the joy of God, without the power of God? Can you imagine David living without the power, the anointing, and the joy of his salvation? You can't imagine it. It'd be awful. I mean, by this stage, Israel is in the millions. By this stage, Israel is a huge nation surrounded by hostile Gentile nations like the Middle East is today. David is a priest. He's a prophet. He's a king. He needs everything that the Lord can give him. But first of all, he wants his joy restored and on top of that, of thy salvation. Salvation is a free gift. Going back to what I've been saying over the last several days, that it's a free gift. It comes via the Lord, not via a church, or in this case, via the Old Testament covenant or some kind of a works-based system. 13. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. In the context, Israel. In the context, in the context, wayward Israel. But we can take such a verse and apply it to unsaved people. Also going back to what I said yesterday, how Jews, for the most part in the Old Testament, didn't brag, didn't boast about God to the Gentiles. That was the whole purpose of God calling them out to be a peculiar people. Save them, of course, glorify the name of Jehovah, but also to reach out to Gentiles. They don't do that. They've never done that. Jews today live in their own little communities. They speak in their own languages, or their own language, Hebrew. They don't integrate. They don't say to Gentiles, do you know Jehovah, the great I am? They don't care where you go when you die, which is awful. Conservative Jews believe in hell. Conservative Jews believe in a judgment. Conservative Jews believe in life after death. And they know that based on the Old Testament, the Gentiles are not parts of the covenant, and therefore, where are they going to go? Hell, of course. But they don't tell you that. They don't uh, witness to you. Going back to most of these religions, it's a private religion, and it's not something which I want to be associated with. I want to get the gospel out. 14. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. So I think David's main problem, I think David's main issue i think the main uh, aspect of david's problem here was the murder of an innocent man it says over in matthew chapter one how bathsheba had been the wife of uzziah this is it twice because he was an innocent man not only would he not spend the night drinking with david not only would he not spend the night eating with david not only would he not go back to his wife that night he wouldn't leave the side of the king 
He wanted to go back to the battlefield, go back to Kings Go Forth. And he said to David, I want to be my men. My men have been deployed. We're going to take the Philistines out. And you've called me back to the palace. He doesn't know why. And this good man wants to serve his men. He's part of a military unit. And David's saying, well, stay the night, old boy. Have a few drinks and then go back to your wife. Trying to cover up, you see. That's what's going on here. An innocent man is about to be sacrificed. That's what I think this is really all about. 15. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Help me out, Lord. I know I've done wrong with this innocent man. Far better than me. He wouldn't spend the night drinking with me. In fact, David wanted to get him drunk. I mean, it goes on and on and on. This is a saved man we're speaking about. This isn't an unsaved man. This is King David. But he's desperate to cover up what's happened. 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. He knows he can't do anything to atone for this. He's in a real bind. He's terrified of being stripped of his anointing. He's terrified of being perhaps treated like Nebuchadnezzar was. I mean, can you imagine King David being cast out of Jerusalem for a period of time on his hands and knees, walking around like a, a vagabond, a beggar? And people saying, is that David over there? And he's having to beg food. That's what was going through his mind. He thought, I can't handle that. It's, it's just awful. I mean, you talk about falling from grace. That's a pretty mighty fall. I don't think for five minutes David was whining about going to hell forever. Some people believe it. I don't believe that. He was whined about losing his anointing. He was whined about not being able to be the king any longer. And now he's desperate for the Lord's mercy. 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Absolutely. So it's like this. You're saved and something comes your way. It could be anything. And people say to you, that's a pretty bad situation you're in now. And they list whatever it may be that you're tied up with. Are you sure you're really saved? I think you've lost your salvation. Or I don't think you were ever chosen to begin with. And that causes a lot of problems. I caught a radio broadcast some years ago. And a guy phoned up, I think it was James White. And he said, I'm very concerned, Dr. White, that I'm not one of the Lord's elect. And uh, White said, well, that's, that is possible, of course. Maybe God didn't die for you. Maybe God doesn't love you. And this guy said, I've been worried about this for such a long time now. I've lost two stone. Something like, I'm not sure what the uh, pounds are in a stone or kilos. I know different countries weigh their body weights in different ways. But this guy lost a lot of weight as a result of the fear, as a result of the dread that perhaps he wasn't saved. He wasn't elected. He hadn't been atoned for. And James White was saying, well, you know, I can't really help you, my friend. You know, salvation is of the Lord. It's a sovereign issue decided before the foundation of the world. And this poor guy was almost suicidal. I was on Facebook just three days ago. Somebody put a link up from John MacArthur's church. A lady gets up and she says to John MacArthur, in fact, I think I've already discussed this, but I'll just put myself very quickly. She said, I'm very concerned. I'm not one of the Lord's elect." And she explains her situation to John MacArthur, and she's in tears. And he's saying to her, do you love the Lord? Are you holy? So on and so forth. And he's trying to help this woman out. But I thought, this is your fault, John. This is your fault, James. If you guys just leveled with your congregations, your radio audience, and said, listen, we have an old nature, we have a new nature. I'm not perfect, you're not perfect. Get yourself off your pedestal. But of course, they won't do that, these Calvinists. They won't level with people. They elevate themselves up there to the level of deity. And it really gets up my nose. It really grieves me. 18. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. 
Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Lord, never mind me. I'm a blip. I'm nothing in the sight of the ultimate plan of Jerusalem, the city of peace, the everlasting city of the great king. I'm only here, Lord, because of your mercy. I know that one day the Messiah will come. He'll come from my loins. I know that, Lord. He wants the Lord to (laughs) take his eyes off David's situation, which is just a blip in eternity, and remember the greater picture. We can do that. We can say, Lord, I know I've messed up here. I know I've messed up there. And it could be a number of things. But for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the blood of Christ, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the future kingdom, please overlook it. That's what David wants the Lord to do. 19. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. So David thought an offering could deal with it and also be reminded of this, that murder couldn't be forgiven in the Old Testament. There was nothing you could do for murder. If you murdered someone, there was no sacrifice you could offer to deal with that. That's what David is really fearful about here because he knows the law. He knows it back to front. I mean, he memorized it. You look at Muslim boys today, they go to the mosque every Friday night and we see them near where we live and they go in in their numbers. I mean, in hundreds. And those young Muslim boys, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and sometimes girls, carrying their Quran to the mosque, they read it, they memorize it. And they know what we believe as Bible believers, and they do their role-playing to deal with people such as ourselves, to undermine what we hold to. Go to Psalm 56. I want to keep moving on. But David was an expert when it came to the Bible. He knew the Bible back to front, and he knew that for murder. There was no sacrifice He couldn't deal with that. And Nathan would say to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. One more thought to the Bathsheba incident. What the Lord could have said to David was, you were wrong to do what you did. You both were in agreement. You both colluded. But he doesn't say that. David stays with Bathsheba. They have Solomon. And Solomon is referred to as beloved of the Lord. David would have other women. I think I counted 12 women. And I can't find anywhere in the Old Testament where the Lord says to David, get rid of the women. It was the murder of an innocent man that was really keeping keeping David awake at night. And that's what he wanted the Lord to pardon him for. 56.4 In God I will praise his word. In God I put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. Messianic, absolutely. And here David is very much back on track. He's back in the land of the living, if you will. He's back in fellowship with the Lord. Nathan has said to him, it's all good, although you will suffer the consequences. In fact, your kingdom will never be the same after this. And I won't get into the problems that will come later down the line for David. 10. In God will I praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I'll not be afraid what man can do unto me. Trust in the Lord for salvation. Trust in the word. For relationship, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two uh, any two-edged sword. Go to Psalm sixty-six, please. Psalm sixty-six, Psalm sixty-six. Look at eighteen, if you will. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily, God hath heard me; He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. What a great God! If I Regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me concerning prayer. 
concerning fellowship, concerning power, concerning service. But verily, God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me, concerning the Lord's anointed, concerning King David. And I think it's fair to say that we don't confess our sins like we should, as saved people. We don't deal with our old natures as we should do. Thankfully, Christ intercedes for us anyway. Thankfully, the uh, spirits of the Lord intercedes for us anyway. Go to Psalm 71. But if he didn't, we'd be completely sunk. But to really prosper, to really do something for the Lord, you need to deal with your inner problems. Going back to uh, Proverbs, casting casting all your thoughts and cares on the Lord. And he will direct your ways, so on and so forth. It's like paraphrase, excuse me. Psalm 71, look at verse 14, if you will. But I will hope continually, and will yet praise thee more and more. Keep on going. Open your mouth, people. Get the gospel out. Never mind your old nature. It'll be dealt with anyway when you go into eternity. 15, my mouth shall show forth thy righteousness and thy salvation all the day. For I know not the numbers thereof. I'm going to preach about Jesus. I'm going to preach about the cross. I'm going to preach about the blood. That's what we would say today. But for the Old Testament, it's David preaching to the Jews. It's David trying to get the Jews back into fellowship with the Lord. And vicariously trying to reach out to the Gentiles. 16. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. Salvation is of the Lord. There's another way to be saved. Imputation. Old Testament, New Testament. But the key is to go in the strength of the Lord, in the power of the Lord God, with the anointing of Almighty God. And I've said this over the years, that the worst thing I can do as a street preacher is to go onto the streets. It could be Cardiff, it could be Bristol, it could be Bath, it could be Glastonbury, it could be Barcelona, it could be Manchester, it could be anywhere, and do so through my own strength and just fall flat on my face. Just speaking from my own heart, my own philosophies, my own ideologies, my own beliefs. And it doesn't register with people. It doesn't make that impact. It's got to come through the scripture. It's got to come from the new nature, from the seed of Christ, which lives within inside me, which can never sin. Otherwise, it's no good. And I'm simply preaching my own beliefs, which mean nothing anyway. 16 again, I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. 17, O God. Thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. That's a great statement. Saved at a very young man, like a saved plucked from obscurity, anointed by Samuel, would completely transform Israel, would uh, take over the reins of Israel at a very difficult time. He would see Saul, a man that he loved. He loved Saul. Saul was his father-in-law. He loved him. He loved Saul's uh, son, Jonathan. He loved Saul's daughter, his wife. Michal was his wife. He loved her. She would hate him later in life. She was very spiteful and bitter towards David. I think she was jealous, really, if the truth were known. And that's one of the reasons why she was barren. 18. Now also when I am old and grey-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation, and thy power to every one that is to come. Never forsake me, O Lord. Be with me 24-7. And yet Hebrews says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I think David wants some reassurance, which is fair enough. He's only a man after all. Sometimes we expect a lot from our leaders. Sometimes Christians expect a lot from their leaders. 
In fact, sometimes Christians will overlook iniquity and sin in unsaved people, which they would never do to save people. And I've noticed for years now there are saved people who are very mean, very malicious, very critical of saved people who get into trouble situations, never forgive those people, treat them like lepers, like scum, and yet they will continue to associate with unsaved people. Could be politicians, could be pop stars, movie stars. Christians say, well, I like to watch this guy. He's got some good comments. Yeah, but he's unsaved. Or I like to watch this woman. She's unsaved, but she, you know, she makes good comments. She has, a, you know, she has an interesting take on society. Yeah, but she did this. He did that. I don't care about that. But if a Christian did that, you would care about it. Some people, they're inconsistent. 19, thy righteousness also, O God, is very high. Who has done great things? O God, who is like unto thee? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. But he wants to really brag about the Lord. You can tell he's back on form here. You can tell he's had his relationship restored. And he wants to preach and preach and preach. But above all, he wants to do the best he can whilst he still has the time. Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Look at 18, please. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. There's much more to be said about King David. But already we spent six mornings looking at King David. And I would estimate over two hours of material has been accumulated over the last several mornings. Looking at King David, trying to appraise him in an accurate way, an honest way not wanting to justify his decisions, and yet at the same time trying to empathize with his decisions, with his actions. The burden, the awful burden of leading a nation is very, very great. Few of us, thankfully, will ever experience that. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I was reading about the Prime Minister, an Anglican from birth, having to, or wanting to consult the Archbishop of Canterbury for guidance on a regular basis, for me, I think she's wasting her time. But I'm not in her shoes. I'm not leading Great Britain. I'm not leading the fifth largest economy in the world. I mean, she has a lot on her shoulders, as would her predecessor, as will her future successor. It's a really difficult job. If you are an American president or any leader of any country in any world, Spain as well, it makes no difference, Singapore, Indonesia, wherever, wherever it's a really difficult job. And that's why these people buckle so many times. And of course, society likes to trip them up. They love it when they fall flat in their face. And the Bible says, if you, if you get some kind of satisfaction when you see your enemy stumble, you need to check yourself out. That's why we are told, we are commanded to pray for those in authority. I don't particularly care for these politicians. I don't know anybody that does. But that's not the point. The point is they are doing very difficult work. Spain is going through a very difficult time at the moment. Very difficult time. Every saved Spaniard or Catalonian man or woman needs to be praying for their country. Fasting if necessary. Brexit is going to be the most challenging situation to affect Britain since World War II. America's not doing particularly well. A lot of uncertainty with America, with the new president. A lot of planning and scheming to get rid of the current president could cause absolute turmoil if they succeed. And other countries in the Far East, you know, are also dealing with difficult times. So that's why I think we need to pray for our leaders. And that's why I think David was really struggling. He wasn't sinless. He knew his limitations. He could have been a whole lot worse. He wasn't 
you know, as good as he could have been. He chose to do what he did. But I think the truth be known, he was no more worse than me. No more worse than you or you or you or you. You know, and by the grace of God, he was greatly beloved. By the grace of God, he was saved. And by the grace of God, he was kept saved. And I would argue that if he could be kept saved and if he was kept saved, praise God, we are as well. Not because of ourselves, but because of ourselves.